0: Yeah, let's dig into how weird their marriage must be. Because guess what? I bet it's really fucking weird. Yeah. She told him that they were going to get married when she was 13. Yeah. It's... Then tricked him into taking her with him into the dystopian future, mm-hmm. where she then grew up, returned to the past, and psychically imprinted her younger self with knowledge of the future, including that she was going to marry Jamie Madrox.
1: X-Men! X-Men! In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is
0: Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of the homo superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with you today is Alana Levin, host of the Graphic Policy Radio podcast at the intersection of comics, politics, and social change, where they interview comics creators about their work and host roundtables with critics and activists since 2012. They are also a critic with lots of bylines that we can get into as the show <laughs> goes on. In the meanwhile, I'd just like to welcome them to the show. Alana, how are you today?
1: Really excited to be here because I am a longtime listener of the podcast.
0: Yeah, you were an early adopter. I always appreciate getting one of the first listeners on the show.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great to hear. So there was always that question I'd had of, well, who would I talk about if I was invited to get on the show? And when you when you reached out to me, I put together my list.
0: Mm-hmm. I think you asked for five and I gave you ten. And um. I'm excited to be here to do it. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of Madrox enthusiasm, and you are sort of known in the world of (laughs) X Factor Investigations discourse criticism. Uh... Just so for newer people who were not in X Men fandom at the time, I've talked a couple of times on this podcast about an unfortunate. Tyrade is sort of the only way I could put it about Romani people that Peter David went on. That has sort of tarnished, I would say, his legacy in comics because it was racist and offensive. Alana was present at the time and ended up writing the summary of it that went very viral because they were a big fan of X Factor investigations. So they went to the panel.
1: It, it, not only that, it was actually the New York Times' LGBTQ panel
0: yeah no it was a big deal panel but you also were a pre-existing fan (laughs) of his so it was an unpleasant day i would imagine
1: i really did not want to have to write i'm a critic not a journalist i do not want to have to do live coverage of the comics writer whose work i read the most of growing up turning out to be a massive racist was really not how i planned on spending my new york comic-con and yet there i was There I was because people didn't want to report it. So it's funny because it's like, you know, I know you always talk to folks about their their origins as a comic reader and like 90s X Factor, the uh, government agency, Val Cooper.
0: The original P.A.D. run. Yeah. With girl boss in chief, Val Cooper.
1: (laughs) Totally. That was my comic growing up. And I I was really heartbroken (laughs) to have to do that. Yeah. And so this has been uh, getting ready to have these conversation with you has also been sort of the, I hadn't really revisited any of this stuff since I'd finished reading it as it came out, um, and so this was my opportunity to go back and take a a look through a different a different lens and a different yeah. awareness of. Uh, of this work but you know I, I just i i think i'm like one of three people who was like oh my favorite comic growing up was peter david x factor yes i was a weird 13 year old
0: i know a lot of people who feel that way though i mean there's a reason that that run is so beloved and a reason that when he came back to the book in 2005 mm-hmm. it became one of the most popular books at marvel for a very long time which is yeah I mean, it had a cult following. It's not selling like, you know, Spider-Man, but it was a passionate enough core base of fans that it ran for like a hundred and something issues.
1: Yeah, I don't think people quite realize the sheer amount of X Factor that was written by Peter David is astonishing, Like he is a writer who has one writer written one ongoing title that showed up in the '80s, '90s, and 2000s. Like X Factor is like been a big work of Peter David, you know. And you know, there's
0: a lot of different artists that have been through it. It's an interesting book also because Larry Strom and Joe Casada, a lot of people who would become big, big names in the industry one of their first big titles that got a lot of attention was that early run in the 90s on peter David's yeah. x-factor i mean stroman with that hair that's the polaris i always think of to this day
1: stroman's art is so stylish and edgy it really like you would not have the same book without it and no. I, it's a shame he couldn't stick around longer
0: well, it goes to show how much the artist is critical to a book in a way that isn't all... I mean, you know, I'm preaching to the choir on this because you're a critic who also, you know, will talk about this. But yeah. it is something I try to... I, like, on this show, I find myself falling into it. Like, I talk about the such-and-such such run, and I, I only mention the writer. And sometimes they do that because there'll be, as in this case, like 20 artists on mm-hmm. it, and it's yeah. not feasible it's not possible but yeah you look at a book like the jerry duggan cable that just ended and like that is a jerry duggan and phil noto mm-hmm. book like there are books where you could do that yeah it is important to acknowledge that when you can and i try mm-hmm. to do it but yeah i mean it is wild how many from that first series and then the investigation series it's wild how many truly top tier particularly very stylized artists were yeah. on this book because as it evolved into its final form you know, the form that became this really popular book as X-Factor Investigations in the aughts, you look at a lot of that art and it didn't look like a Marvel comic. It looked like a Vertigo book. It looked like Hellblazer. It was noir. Yeah,
1: I mean, that was the thing, like, I started reading the X-Factor Investigations. It had already been underway for, I'm not quite sure, maybe a year. Mm -hmm. I am going back and and reading stuff that had been released. And the thing that people... I. Think don't necessarily recall is that it came out of a Marvel Knights series, which was the Madrox yeah. miniseries. Yep. And so that particular style, which was this like edgy turn of the millennium noir visual graphic style, was fresh and unique at that time. And if you were looking for something with that tone, like this was actually coming in from there. So I had, I I went back and read them. I, I had missed the Marvel Knights series. I read I read it like a few years after it began to come out, but you know, for me, basically, I had been a fairly solitary comics reader for a lot of my life, and then, and then I had like no money at all because I was a broke young adult, and then I was only able to get into the X Factor run when I like started to have friends who were also comics readers, and I could pillage their collections. So I kind of returned to it through there, and. In my mind, I was getting into it when I was also reading like the Bendis Daredevil and stuff like Mm -hmm. the Bendis Maliv Daredevil or like the Jessica Jones. Yeah, It was a piece of that kind of work. And it didn't it didn't feel like it was coming in from the X-Men side of the world. And the stories didn't uh, there weren't that that wasn't all of that much of a crossover there. And stylistically, it was so different. And the art was so different.
0: That's the real thing is that this was a time period for the X-Men where following the story of the X-Men became very, very complicated. And it's funny because the decimation was supposed to simplify Marvel's mutant world, right? Like it was (laughs) Casada and company deciding we have too many mutant characters, perhaps in part because Fox owns the rights to any new mutant Mm -hmm. characters, but also just in general, the X universe is taking up too much real estate. So it was like, we're going to significantly cut it down to just the characters that matter. That's the premise behind the decimation. But the plot then becomes very complicated and starts shifting through several books at once. You have the Kylan Yost X-Force, the Black Ops book where a lot of Rain's plot kind of dips between the two for a mm. long time. Because Rain is in the Madrox miniseries yes. and then is in the beginning of X-Factor Investigations, but then Futz is off, to x-force around messiah complex and is gone for a while and then she comes back pregnant mm-hmm. that's the only real crossover that this book really has otherwise you don't have to be reading anything else
1: like you have to know what civil war is but you don't have to be reading anything that civil war is in and they'll explain it to you in yeah, the x-factor and X-Fa- issue.
0: exactly yeah it was a safe harbor from events, I think. For yes, a lot of it people. was. It was like, yes. okay, you don't want to read any of this. Just come over here and just, read. even in Messiah Complex, which is a very classic style event like Inferno or Executioner's Song, where it's just it proceeds through each book as a chapter. You can just read the X Factor issues if you're just reading X Factor and understand what's going on.
1: It was a safe harbor from the crossovers as well as from a house style of art that didn't speak to me. And, you know, there were lots of comics coming out with this style at that time, but it still was a minority mm-hmm. of the overall mainstream output. And I just didn't like the, the standard house style that was The Greg out. Land
0: thing that was yeah, happening the fucking at the Grand time. Thing was we so have to t- be honest about it. We all know what we're talking about.
1: It was so tacky and ugly. And, like, not good tacky, just to be clear. Like, the bad no. kind.
0: I think honestly that it was a big part of the downswing of the X Men. Honestly, Mm -hmm. was that art? And like they,
1: when and they like assigned some amazing writers to him. Like they were trying to bring them down. Like it
0: felt like sabotage. It really mm -hmm. was was wild.
1: You intellectual folks who read, you know, Gillen and Al Ewing, you're gonna read this. Greg Landart of, like, tracings from vivid videos from 1990s. Right. Because you like their writing so much. And we're just like, but these, like, feminist writers are being saddled with this extremely <sighs> sexist art. Why are you doing this to me? It
0: really messes up so many stories. I mean, in the, uh, in the Pixie episode, I talked mm. about how... <laughs> That character, really, I was very resistant to for a long time because of, like, the Greg Land sexification that happened to her in the Brubaker Diffraction Mm -hmm. changeover. Mm -hmm. It took me a long time to not physically, like, feel something about (laughs) it. The other character I have a problem with in this way is Laura, X-23 Wolverine, whatever you want to call her, because I first encountered her in NYX. Mm Mm-hmm. If you're not familiar with NYX, which is a mini series by Joe Quesada, listeners, X23 who was an enormously popular breakout character from the X-Men Evolution cartoon, sort of the Harley Quinn of the Marvel universe, like <laughs> introduced in a cartoon becomes yeah. a big sensation. But when they introduced her to the comics, it was as like a sex trafficked teenage prostitute. So mm-hmm. I found that really off-putting and it felt like men writing this weird fetishistic thing and I was like, no thank you. So those are two characters that were sort of the biggest, I guess, you know, armor because of the Whedon cachet was the other one, but sort of the three younger characters who sort of headlined that era, two of them I was so kind of put off by because of the way I had been introduced to them, Mm -hmm. feeling creepy and then... One of them I was put off by because I didn't like the Whedon run. So all three (laughs) of them were kind of rough going for me. But that sort of brings us back to X-Factor Investigations because, man, (laughs) it's easy to understand why people loved this book. I liked it for the first 30 odd issues, I would say. Basically, I dropped it when he absorbed the baby. Oh,
1: I have. So I, it's been interesting listening to the show and sort of getting everybody's, everybody on. Everybody it feels like I'm pretty sure that everybody who's ever been on the show, except for me, like always hated Peter David. Is kind of how it sounds. No, we've That's had okay. people. Like, we've had
0: no, we've had people on who really love that. I mean, I love that '90s run, the original. Yeah. 90s run. Okay. Teeny Howard, who was the very first guest on this show, right? X Factor investigations was a huge huge influence. That's for true, her, Yeah, which I assume is part of why she's now writing a book that stars Monet and Jamie, right? Right. So, right. okay. I think that for a lot of people, this book was hugely popular, hugely beloved. It takes a really sharp right turn at Messiah Complex. I would say. Oh yeah.
1: No, but I wish. It, but but what I was going to say though is for me, I really really hate when they saddle female characters with a baby with like surprise babies yeah. and so on balance my aversion for like I'm sorry she would have had an abortion just like most people do well yes to me i mean like I know she's catholic but guess what they have them too just as much as literally every other demographic
0: it actually would have been interesting to explore that given that she's irish and at the time this comic came out of it was the legal. not been legalized yet
1: yeah But so the thing is, like, I was just so glad to not have to have another fucking pregnancy story. I was fine with it. So it's like I understand people's complaints. But to me, ultimately, if my number one goal was no more, like, inappropriately not planned babies, then there I am. Like, yes, excellent.
0: Here's the thing. I am with you 95% of the time, I would say. Like... They need to get rid of Jubilee's baby, in my opinion. Oh. Jubilee has had a baby now for six years. Yeah. And it's still a baby. But that's, they that kind of, oh, it's true. Okay. Well, the problem with babies is they can't age because it ages everyone around them. I just think that with
1: Jubilee, it feels like it's a choice in a way that, this one, which was sort of just like, I guess women's bodies get pregnant sometimes, which they do, and then they address no, Jubilee it by made an affirmative choice. Right, like, Jubilee Absolutely. made an for, exactly.
0: So I'm actually don't mind it for her. No, I'm not saying it was necessarily a bad story beat for Jubilee. Mm-hmm. I just think that six years later, I've just been rereading a lot of Jubilee stuff because Jubilee's on the docket. Yeah. Coming up, that's right. Yeah. Oh, actually, before we get really in deep, a couple bits of business real quick. First. I forgot to mention last week in the sync episode a really funny retcon that they do early in Gen X to explain why he's a super buff muscle man in that first panel that Kendra and I talked about extensively. (laughs) They say that he had synced with Sabretooth when the team arrived. So it's like he was all bulked up because he bulked up like saber tooth. So that's a funny, clever little retcon. Once Botula was like, he's not supposed to look like that. He's like a regular looking guy. (laughs) Neat. Second thing, I just wanted to give a shout out to Neil Conan, much vaunted ally of mutant kind. On Earth 616, Neil Conan and his investigative partner, Manoli Wetherell, filmed the X-Men and Madeline Pryor, sacrificed their lives to save the world from the adversary in Fall of the Mutants. They would later appear in a number of other Chris Claremont stories. They were, in fact, real people, Mm -hmm. real journalists for NPR. Neil Conan worked at NPR for 36 years and spent 11 years as the host of Talk of the Nation. He died just recently at age 71 of cancer. May his memory be a blessing. Yeah. As everybody who listens to this podcast knows, I'm a big Manoli Weatherall head in terms of like the fictional character based on her, and Neil was a big part of that. They were, to me, fascinating little supporting characters when I was Mm -hmm. a kid, and I had no idea that they were real people. So I was (laughs) fascinated to learn that as I got older, and I am sorry to hear that Mr. Conan has passed. Third bit of business. You may have already seen this on Twitter, but if not... Here's the deal. I'm recording a whole bunch of episodes over the next couple weeks, and then they will be coming out as normal. But I don't know what the order of the episodes is going to be just yet because it depends on guest scheduling. So I am opening the floodgates on questions right now. If you have questions on any of the following characters, Jubilee, Cable, or Charles Xavier, please send those to cerebrocast at gmail.com. There's like 56 of them already in the account, so I think we'll be good. But if you have a pressing urge, go for it. Okay, so that's the business out of the way. To go back around (laughs) to what we were talking about before, you were a big Peter David fan going into X-Factor Investigations, and we were talking about Terry. My issue with that storyline, I'm all for getting rid of the children, if we can do it. (laughs) This is part of why a big bugbear of mine is plots that give characters children because then you inevitably take them away. Yeah. Because here's the problem. I get that it was an affirmative choice for Jubilee. I think it made for some interesting stories for her for like a year or two. And now I think it has hamstrung the character a little bit. Mm. You know, like, yeah. But there's options. There's all, like send him to daycare. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Like he could be a little bit older and go to school. Yeah. Like if he's not a baby. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So I get it. Now, you know, there are exceptions. Sometimes you make the character work. Like Megan and Brian's daughter being super intelligent is very funny. And that's a character who can serve a function in the plot, mm-hmm. even though she's two years old. It's harder with babies. That's why you have cable. That's why you have all these yeah. characters who were babies who then got sent to the future and sent back or whatever sent to an alternate dimension or that's why Ilyana ages up that's why Layla Miller ages up to get to the real meat oh, of this episode preemptively yeah there are a number of reasons Layla Miller ages <laughs> up but one of them yeah. is that at a certain point she would have been stuck at perma 13 unless they did a soap opera time jump because if a character ages, it means the other characters age. This is the New Mutants problem. This is the Cape mm-hmm. Pride problem. Now yeah. that Kate Pride and the New Mutants should be about 30, logically, the original X-Men should be in their 50s. But Marvel doesn't want to do that. So it starts to become awkward. And I think that child characters suffer the most from that. The Academy X-Kids mm-hmm. have been 18 now for 20 years.
1: Yeah. And I still don't know their names.
0: Same. I'm still like, oh, (laughs) every now and then, like, I'm introduced to a new one and it feels like a prank. I'm like, match? (laughs) Who are these people? Yeah, totally. Because I went back Uh and reread some stuff for the Pixie episode. I was like, I simply have never heard of any of you.
1: Well, you talk a lot about different generations of X-Men readers that came in. And I'm kind of stuck in between that because... I got into comics through my younger brother. Most people get into comics through their older brother. I got into Mm -hmm. it through my younger brother, which means that I didn't discover comics until he was old enough to read comics, at which point I was like in junior high already. So I missed reading the Claremont. I I am of age where I should have been reading Claremont, but I didn't even know superhero comics were like a thing that I could acquire. So I missed the Claremont era. And then I was too old for Gen X. So I don't actually have you don't have your own generation yeah no i really i really don't and like and and the the x-men comic that was like the most important one to me as a as a as a young teenager reading them was x factor and those were adults and that was fine with me i had no need to find any particular teenagers oh that's interesting yes i have never been particularly trying to seek out stories of quote people my own age quote so that's just me neither to me yeah like i don't care
0: in my day job as a lit agent, I don't do YA. Like, it's mm-hmm. not my wheelhouse. I don't yeah. read it. So I don't... Like, if a client writes one, we'll strategize together. But mm-hmm. it's not something I seek out. In my childhood, like, Excalibur was the one that jumped out to me. And yeah. Kitty was a teenager, but when I'm reading it initially, I'm, like, 11. So... So she's very matured. yeah. A grown-up. Yeah. Like, yeah. it was not, you know... Anybody in high school was an adult as far as I was concerned. (laughs) So it never read to me as a book about a teenager. And then it was more Rachel and Megan and Brian and Kurt and all of their very adult drama that I was interested in. Yes. X Factor similarly interested me because I have to say, like I'm not really into the 90s aesthetic overall. Yeah. But I do love a half cowl head sock.
1: Pet the sleeve sucks. moment. Oh I like
0: him. I particularly like Alex's costume in that book. I think it's the best he's ever looked. I did looked. too. So he was hot, and then Lorna was cool. And Lorna had never looked cooler because, again, the hair in this era was just so bombastic. And she had had it in the very curly perm for the whole 80s. So it was nice to see it like free and not in like a cube around her more head.
1: angular <laughs> yeah it was a more angular style i mean because stroman is he's his art style is so stylized and he's so he's silly really recognizable and unique really fabulous yeah i mean for me like i it was the reason i got into x factor in particular is i may be elana brooklyn on twitter but i grew up in the dc area and x factor was the government team right and everything was taking place in georgetown which i knew like that's where i hung out Mm -hmm. and there was something to me as like the kid of like two federal employees like it made a lot of sense that there would be a mutant team that would be part of the government because that was one of the ways you have accountability to make sure people were not just blowing shit up now i have a different perspective on that now but as a kid this made sense with my like well yeah, in real realistically, clearly they, they would be. Of a course there'd be oversight. Team. Right. Like, yeah. Exactly, because you regulate weapons and that's how things go. Like that was my brain power. And so it's it felt smarter to me and more topical to me than the other books did that were coming out at that time. I also really hated Liefeld. I mean, I still do. But like as a kid, I was like, that's ugly. Why are there so many pouches and nobody has that many teeth? And so a lot of the art that was influenced by him as well, because it wasn't just him, I remember. He ushered in. No,
0: there's a lot of imitators or mm-hmm. let's say people following in his. In example. his style. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I just didn't. And, and there, now their X Factor had plenty of art that was following that as well. But yeah, the Jay
0: Lee stuff is sort of in mm-hmm. that realm. But I yeah. personally find Jay Lee to be a much more life it's, it's better just, than life to just yeah, he does make everyone look like a Dracula with a lot of teeth, but it's cool,
1: <laughs> but, um, but you know, so like for me, it, it it is really kind of crazy that I got into comics right during the time in which the art style I like the least became dominant. It's like why why would I make that choice? but i I don't know, i I really quickly also saw a lot of classic Silver Age art, which mm-hmm. really did and continues to speak to me. And so that was one of the things that kind of kept me interested in comics um was the despite like i also i didn't particularly like jim lee either like despite like the popular art of that of my of my day not speaking to me like i could tell there was enough comics art that did that i was still very interested in the medium and the thing with x-men for me as well like i'm a queer jewish person who was aware of myself as being those things at that time even as a kid and was like well this is a really politically significant comic and i i I felt like it was really easy to explain and justify, like, why reading this was worth my time when it was so clearly capital P political as a work of art. Yeah,
0: well, I mean, I'm fascinated by it as a political relic of a moment, like the sliding time scale. We've talked about this endlessly on this show, how it causes trouble for characters like Karma or characters like Colossus. Mm -hmm. Characters like Maggot, who are all tied to, in Karma's case, the fall of Saigon, in Colossus's case, Soviet farming in a way that doesn't really <laughs> exist anymore. Yeah. And in Maggot's case, he was born and grew up in apartheid South Africa, which now he can't have because the time right. scale has moved up. So there's all kinds of interesting things there. But to me, what really X Factor hinges on as a fascinating time capsule in that way is valerie cooper because if you look at when valerie cooper is introduced it's as the special assistant to ronald reagan Mm -hmm. she is ronald reagan's advisor on mutant affairs affairs. now i've chosen to and we'll dig deeper into this in the valerie cooper episode which is coming at some point i have the guest and it's going to be fun but oh sweet the (laughs) thing about val is that like is she a republican is she like one of those Democrats who works with any administration? Like, is she a third-way type? I think in the 90s is where she fits best because she's very much a Clinton Democrat. Mm -hmm. It makes perfect sense that the Clinton administration would hire the same mutant affairs liaison as the Reagan administration. Yes, yes. Because it's about compromise, right? And, Mm -hmm. like, they, you know, that was the whole philosophy. So I think... It's just a really interesting book because that initial run, it all is happening under the shadow of the legacy virus.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Because it's after Executioner's song through the end of David's initial tenure on that book, the legacy virus is out and about. Right after David leaves, it is Jamie Madrox who is infected, which we'll yep. get to when Scott Labdell and JMD Mateus were filling in for a while. And the whole time you're thinking about like, all right, guys, we need to figure out our response to the legacy virus and the government official coordinating the team is from the Reagan administration. There's just a lot of like Valerie Cooper's failure to handle the legacy virus is in many ways the comics page finally taking the Reagan administration to task for failing to handle AIDS. Yeah. And as much as I think the legacy virus plot is a mess and, you know, allegorically has a lot of problems as a metaphor for the AIDS Mm -hmm. crisis, that's cool. The problem that you then run into, though, is that David is very sympathetic to Valerie Cooper. Yeah. And we become sympathetic to Valerie Cooper because she's not a bad person. She's not a great person, but she's someone who seems to have good intentions. We get some of her interiority. This is not a Valerie Cooper episode, no. but it is just a really fascinating time capsule moment to see this sort of progressive character at the time who is now so retrograde in how she approaches all these situations.
1: But to be clear, the team leaves her. They do. The team is like we can't trust you and they hold her accountable for like letting the mutant deaths happen. I you know, the thing also with, like the thing I would also say with Legacy Virus as much as it's like a completely clumsy and like there's all kinds of levels in which she could be extremely offensive like as like a, a young person reading it at the time, it all felt very smart to me. Sure. Me too. Cause I was six. Exactly. It's yeah. exactly <laughs> as smart as you are. Yes. As, as you are young child. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was so, like, Oh, they
0: can't talk about AIDS. So they're doing this. How clever. I, cause I'm seven years old or whatever, but you know, so
1: at the time I was like, see, this is topical. This is valid. Like this is completely okay for me to be spending time in an emotional investment in this comic. It's not yeah. stupid. Um, and then, yeah. So, and I so I do think, like, another, one of the things that was really important to me, like, with, with Madrox was, like, he was one of the mutants that died, or at least temporarily, of legacy virus. Yeah. And, like, nothing is more early 90s
0: than that, you know? Right. No, if you look at the big casualties, like, the big characters who die of the legacy virus, there aren't that many, right? No. Ilyana, as, like, a child post-Inferno, which is the really dark... I think emotionally manipulative way that they opened the storyline, and then you have pyro eventually infectia an x factor villain who was never that major a character, revanche because yep. that was a good way to get rid of her because it quickly what a powerful became... scene though I mean, God, listen. I am a con on head. I have been since I was very small. I love that character. I'm so thrilled she's back getting her flowers in exactly the way that she deserves to. But yes, her scenes where she's dying of the legacy virus are the best scenes in all the legacy virus stuff, period. It's so powerful. Like, I'm sorry your girl died, but at least it was really good art. It's one of the best death scenes in any extra yeah, comic, I think. Exactly, Where she tells Matsuo, like, if you love me, you will kill me right now.
1: And the holding the eyeballs in her hand. I mean, this is powerful shit. She rips Mojo's robo
0: eyes out of her head or out of Betsy's head, if we're thinking about it.
1: Yeah, I had all those floppies.
0: That stuff was good. Mm -hmm. But the biggest character, the biggest character to go was Jamie Madrox. That Mm -hmm. was shocking. I remember when it happened. I really didn't see it
1: coming. and I cried. I cried. I really did. And I got to
0: say... If they had just kept him dead, it'd be an all timer. It would be like the yeah. death of Captain Marvel. It would be mm-hmm. like one of those stories. Yeah. But they never do that, particularly no. the next bit. I mean, once you bring Colossus back, and that was much later, but I'm just yes. saying, like, speaking of the Legacy Virus, if you're going to undo Colossus's big sacrifice that ends the Legacy Virus plot, four years later then you just don't care that much about death as a actual thing with consequences yeah with jamie it is easier to explain yes survived (laughs) because listeners if you're not familiar basically it turns out that the one that died was a dupe and like because of the legacy fucking with his powers and the psychic feedback from haven's healing treatment don't worry about haven but she's fun we'll get there love her i love her too i want her back the psychic shock of it all gives him amnesia so he like wanders off for a while and then like 20 issues later he's back and it's like great jamie's not dead
1: but what's interesting is i didn't know that i didn't know he was back it wasn't until howard Mackey took over the book and i didn't read the howard Mackey stuff because the art was so fucking ugly i couldn't make myself read it so <laughs> i but i guess had you told me that jamie madrox who you really love is back in in this if like had i been reading wizard at the time right. which i would only read it when i was stealing it from my brother like and you told me jamie was back i would have started reading the comic to find out how that happened but by looking on the cover just i was like ew this is this such ugly art and like the whole era when comics were switching from uh being printed on newsprint to being printed on glossy and the yeah. the, 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 the dawn of um Look at all the colors color. we can do. So yeah.
0: fucking ugly. Hideous. That is an underrated reason that is not talked about enough for why late well, the 90s art is so bad. comics are so mostly Heinous. difficult to read. Yeah. Because everybody suddenly had a drastically expanded color palette and just did too much with it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: they really did too much with it and the materials changed faster than people could really adapt to understand how to make art that would work with it so yeah so i had no idea that jamie so for all ilana knew jamie died from legacy virus and then at some point in time in the year 2000 there was a noir comic about him and that was my understanding and i had no problems with him being back because i'm like he's multiple man also it's comics whatever
0: that's the thing about madrock specifically because this has now happened like four more times that jamie dies and it's incredibly tragic and then <laughs> one of the dupes pops up and is like, I'm Jamie now. It gets to a point where when he was the first victim to die of MPOX during the Inhumans versus X-Men period. He
1: was? Oh, God. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he was the first uh... to go. And I just looked at the person I was talking to and I was like, well, he'll be back in like two years. They've done this so many times. It might not have even have been taken that long. No. Good God. Oh, actually, I guess it took a bit because it was... He was dead from Death of X until the Rosenberg mini, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, the point is, this is a character who, therefore, is confusing because he's constantly being retconned into a dupe. Like, if there's any plot that you don't like or that you want to get rid of, you retcon that the real Jamie, quote-unquote, was somewhere else at the time. And that just there is no real Jamie is the well right. That's the question. It's
1: hard for me to say like, Oh, I'm a fan of Madrox. I'm not a fan of him in the sense that I'm like, what a great person that we love. It's like, no, I'm interested in stories that he's in because people have used him in genres and in spaces that I find interesting. And he inherently by the nature of his powers raises interesting
0: questions for us to like talk about. Yeah, ontological questions, existential questions. Exactly. What does it mean to be real? Mm -hmm. I find him interesting in the same way, to some extent, that I find Madeline Pryor interesting, right? Which is like, I am of the opinion that Madeline Pryor is a real person. There are arguments that have been made to the contrary. I'm of the opinion that Strife is a real person.
1: Yes, these are real
0: people. These are real people. What does it mean that these dupes... Because initially they really are just drones that have the same mind as him. But as it goes on, and this is Peter David who develops Mm -hmm. this pretty abruptly. Yeah, in the 90s. They start to manifest different personalities. Personalities, yeah. And it is made clear in that 90s run that there is a Jamie Prime who can overpower the others.
1: And that some of them are manifesting specific sides of his personality. Yes.
0: That gets deeply expanded upon in X-Factor Investigations. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of, I guess, wave off like, oh, the legacy virus messed with my powers. But like the version of Multiple Man you get in X-Factor Investigations where every single dupe is a distinct facet of his personality is not something you had before. But when he was dying of the legacy virus, he instinctively split into three people and one mm-hmm. of them was aggressive. One of them was like more normal. And the other one who everybody thought was Jamie Prime was cowardly and had the virus
1: yeah he's very avoidant handling his problems by avoiding them which is one of the more popular problems of the character like yes many jamies suffer from that particular tendency
0: right and so when that one died it really did feel like he had actually died you know haven fails to heal him and it's Mm -hmm. now then when you look back you're like oh well but it was a dupe so of course haven failed to heal him it's not she wasn't working with what she thought she was working with. Right. Yeah. Also Haven is like under a lot of mistaken beliefs. beliefs. Yeah. So that's, you know, it could have been something else that caused the problem, but like she healed rain, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. like she can clearly do it. So I guess like, I think what makes the most sense a little bit to get people in, because this is like such a long and winding weird road is to kind of start at the beginning and talk about how this character entered the world of the X-Men, which is in a very peculiar way. He is the antagonist of Giant Size Fantastic Four Number 4, which is 1975. It's Len Wein and Chris Claremont co-writing. It's drawn by John Buscema. It's a really beautiful issue. And we get his whole little backstory, which is that his mutant power manifested from birth when he was slapped on the ass by the doctor at the delivery, he split into two babies. And it became clear immediately that something was amiss because his power is to create an exact duplicate of himself, including any clothes he's wearing when he is physically struck. As it so happens, his father, Dr. Daniel Madrox, is, of course, a nuclear physicist because back then that was still where all this came from. Charles Xavier turns out to be an old friend of Dr. Madrox's and arranges for the Madroxes to hide out on a farm in Kansas where no one will discover them, which is an odd solution, in my opinion.
1: As they often are.
0: Yeah, it's like this is just to explain why he wasn't one of the original X-Men, right? Like there has to be a justification for why he wasn't there. So it's like, oh, we figured it'd be safer if he could grow up without attention. Someone designs a special suit that keeps his mutant power from working, and he has to wear it all the time. And then a tornado goes through the farm and kills his parents. So he just keeps working the farm. He has no friends. He's been isolated his entire life. This is something that I think is actually important to the character. Mm-hmm going forward and Peter David will bring that out in the examinations issue that's so famous where they all talk to Doc Samson both of them yeah and they all admit all of the X Factor members admit something painful to Samson by the end of the issue and the thing that Jamie admits is that he feels compelled to be a jokester, to be chatty, to be funny because he was alone his entire life and he's terrified of ever being alone again. So once his power starts to manifest because the suit starts to degrade without anyone to check it or work on it, he starts duplicating kind of out of control. He feels drawn to New York where he's like draining electrical energy to control to like contain himself his mental state is all messed up he's going a little crazy and the fantastic four capture him fix the outfit with the help of professor xavier they offer jamie a spot on the x-men and he's not interested instead he decides to go be moira mctaggart's lab assistant on muir island Mm mm-hmm Obviously he's a very useful lab assistant to have because he can be like 20 people. So he ends up staffing pretty much the whole facility by training with Moira. He eventually becomes able to take off the suit and, and control the power more effectively, though he still wears it most of the time. Then Havoc and Polaris show up because they have had their own mind control misadventure And then Jean shows up because she thinks all the X-Men have died in Antarctica. And so they're all kind of chit-chatting on Mirror Island when the Proteus saga pops off. Proteus, who burns out his host bodies as he goes between them, ends up possessing one of the Madrox duplicates, which is a traumatic experience for him. We see that he feels a profound psychic backlash when one of them dies. Then, because Banshee has lost his powers, Cyclops again is like, Jamie, if you want to join the team, like, we're a man short. And again, he's like, I really don't think so. And then he's sort of in the background for a while until randomly he pops up in Fallen Angels. Have you yeah. ever read this, Mini?
1: I only re- I only learned that he was in Fallen Angels when I was doing research to prep for this. And I heard about <laughs> Fallen Angels from J.M. Mouse Explain the X-Men. And of course, they're like, it's like Die Hard, but with lobsters. And so I was like, clearly, I want to read this Die Hard with lobsters. But I couldn't quite get into it. And I think it might have just been that it's not a comic that reads very well on a tiny little cell phone screen.
0: Oh, possible. Yeah. So I'm
1: willing to give it another go, but I couldn't quite get into it.
0: I'm a big fan of Ariel, the character from that, who's like the mysterious kind of deceptive alien. I think she's fun. Mike Carey brought her back in the uh, Utopia era. But yeah, Fallen Angels, which has come up a couple times on the show at this point because I've done the Sunspot and Cannonball episodes... Fallen Angels is a very weird book written by Joe Duffy and drawn by Kerry Gamble, where Sunspot accidentally hurts Cannonball really bad. There's a whole bunch of misunderstandings, and he runs <laughs> away from the mansion. Warlock follows after him to keep an eye on him, and they end up falling in with a group of teen pickpockets, essentially, Teen mutant pickpockets who are being trained on the streets of Manhattan by the Vanisher, who's an old 60s villain of the X-Men. This, bizarrely, because the last time he had appeared was in 1979, as far as I know, Mm -hmm. with that Proteus arc. He then pops up here and Fallen Angels is 1987. So it's been like a minute. He's a lot like Havoc and Polaris in that way in that Claremont initially didn't seem to know what to do with them and just kind of like shuffled them off. But Polaris and Havoc found things to do. Polaris got possessed by Malice. Havoc ended up joining the X-Men and going into the Outback era. Mm -hmm. But Multiple Man was just kind of around. So he pops up in Fallen Angels Because he and Moira and Siren, Teresa Cassidy, Terry Cassidy, Banshee's long-lost daughter, who has the same powers as him, are dispatched to New York to try and find Sunspot and Warlock. Siren and Multiple Man basically have a portable Cerebro and they're walking around looking for Sunspot. There's an interesting plot here because it's sort of the first time that a dupe declares its autonomy. Mm -hmm. He splits up a bunch of dupes to, like, look around, right? And this dupe bumps into a lady, helps her carry her parcels, sees the great vistas of New York and all of the beautiful things to see, and realizes that if he gets reabsorbed into Jamie Prime, his memories, the things he's experienced as himself will become just drops in the bucket of the Gestalt's memories. And he realizes that this is like death and he doesn't want to return. Lots of stuff happened with the fallen angels that don't really matter. The duplicate who doesn't want to be reabsorbed gets hit by a bicycle and is like pretty badly injured. Jamie is like, you should merge back in with me so that we can heal together. And he explains like, I don't want to I can't explain why I feel this way, but I want to be my own person. By the end of the mini, after the Coconut Grove aliens have like murdered a (laughs) dupe right in front of the team to make a point, they do end up recombining and Jamie develops kind of a new application of his power where he multiplies himself into a whole bunch of duplicates before the merge. So like the pain... And the trauma, the physical trauma, is sort of, like, spread between everybody. But unfortunately, this does mean that the memories that this dude wanted to preserve are sort of split into 20 pieces and kind of lost in the din. So it's kind of a tragic story. Over the course of this story, Madrox and Siren get closer and closer and become really good friends. And after Sunspot decides, okay, I have to leave the Fallen Angels. This is not good for me. And he and Warlock get out. Siren and Madrax decide to stay with the team in the hopes that they can counterbalance the Vanishers' evil leanings and keep these teens on the straight and narrow, as it were. Fallen Angels 2 never came together, so quickly, in the background, without much explanation, Jamie and Siren end up back on Muir Island with Moira. That is where the Muir Island saga happens, where the Shadow King has transformed Moira into Slutty Moira, who wears her little leather mini skirts and has big crazy hair. Jamie is also possessed... Basically, the Shadow King has possessed Legion, and Legion is an Omega-level threat with all kinds of powers, so... He starts taking over the whole island. And so he takes over Siren and Lorna and Jamie. They're sort of forced to fight the X-Men. doesn't really matter. This is a storyline that gets glossed over for the most part because Claremont ran into a lot of problems with editorial and it all got kind of changed midstream and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The key to that event is that it recombines X-Factor and X-Men into one team, which leads to the 1991 relaunch the Claremont Lee relaunch with the blue team and the gold team where the original five X-Men who had become X-Factor are now reintegrated into the team, which leaves the title, literally the title of the book, X-Factor Vacant, but also leaves in-universe the mantle of X-Factor Vacant. Freedom Force in other elements of the Island saga has disbanded essentially at this point. So Val Cooper is like, well, wait, I need a new government team And convinces Havoc and Polaris to head up this new government-run X-Factor with a couple of supporting characters who have never previously, apart from Wolfsbane, been that big a deal in X-Men books. So it's Quicksilver, who had been on the Avengers for a long time, but was originally, obviously, an X-Men character. But like he and the Scarlet Witch had shunted off to Avengers Mm -hmm. pretty quickly. It brings him back to the X-Men books. Strong guy, Guido Carasella, who was just a character that Peter David seemed to really like. He was just Lila Cheney's bodyguard, like not a, you know, super important character. And multiple man who, as we're sort of outlining here outside of Fallen Angels, had never really had a heroic story or moment. So it's an odd team, but for some reason it worked. I mean, what was it about Madrox in that book that really drew you into him?
1: i think i mean honestly like one of the things was the like he had cool hair that was of the time period and i really resented when like people would draw out of fashion stuff basically and like they did a reasonably decent job of maintaining his style (laughs) to my understanding as a young teenager of the moment with his trench coat and whatnot um, but I, I, what I found really compelling was there was something inherently philosophical about this character's existence. Um, like the question of who counts as a person when I see in control of himself, the more you read into it and the more you deal with like people treating him and the dupes as disposable in some ways, like it just poses so many interesting questions. And I think also there was something about the, you know, this is true for him and Guido. Like there's like the Pagliacci, like tears of the clown thing that they both Mm -hmm. have going on. That is like, wait, you have two people on your team whose shtick that is? But in reality, it is a very common thing, period. So I suppose it's not unrealistic that there's two people in your team with that same thing.
0: Yeah, it is unusual to have more than one on a small superhero team though. And I do think that part of why Jamie gets written out is that, first of all, his power is maybe a little too useful Mm -hmm. and complicated. Like, you know, I can see it being daunting for a writer who, you know, isn't necessarily personally invested in the character after the changeover from Peter David to Lobdell and DeMatteis. And I don't Mm -hmm. know what they thought about Jamie Madrox, but I could see them being like, God, this character's power is such a headache, you know. But also, you already have the jokester comic relief character because you have strong guy.
1: But it's not just a Ghost or comic; it's Ghoster comic. The character who's performing it as because armor there's deep their... sadness exactly. inside,
0: right? But like Iceman in that way, like you know, like yeah. there is a real problem going on at core that mm-hmm. they're covering up by being the class clown.
1: Yeah, and like I and I, I I felt bad for him; like I felt compassion. And you have like Alex, who like is the shittiest team leader, and I resented the fact that Alex wasn't. Alex was only in charge of X Factor because he was a white man whose last name was Summers. Yeah. And it was so clear the entire time that he did not want to be in charge and was not qualified to be in charge at all at all but like you know alex tells him like suck it up when his dupe gets murdered like people treat him like completely callously and abusively in ways that are like just really clear if you're like reading it and they just dismiss his pain um you know he's has a lot of pop culture savviness that's written into him and peter david does that for a lot of his characters but jamie does hold a lot of that himself You know, you're like, he likes Motown, he likes the Muppets. And I'm like, I like Motown and I like the Muppets.
0: Well, when you think about it, he grew up for the first 18 at least years of his life in complete isolation. So the television is probably the, you know, he's actually in that way a lot like Megan. Right. From Excalibur. He also had like a teaching computer that Professor Xavier gave his family. So he had like educational lessons or whatever. Mm -hmm. So he's not uneducated in the way that Megan is when we meet her, but similarly, like, raised by TV, which is then something that David in X-Factor Investigations years later really emphasizes. Like, I always think of that scene where he... (laughs) It's after he and Layla have sex for the first time, because she's a grown-up now, to be clear. So it's totally okay. So it's totally okay, even though she was a child four issues ago. He tells her about Terry's baby. The baby he had with Terry that then he absorbed, and he starts crying. And he's like, Oh my God, this is so embarrassing. And she's like, No, it's not. Like, you can cry. And he's like, There's no crying in noir. Crying in noir, yeah. And she says, This isn't noir. This is like our real life, you know? Yeah. His desire to perform. I think is a constant thing about the character to perform a pop culture archetype that he understands because that's how he interacts socially with other people because he wasn't properly socialized. Yeah. So he's like, I am a character that you can interact with because you understand who I am. I'm this detective guy. Yeah. I think right now in X-Corp, he's trying to be like Dr. House, right? (laughs) You know, like he's doing a different kind of procedural where he's like scientist procedural.
1: Right, right. No, yeah, he's always been really interested in genres and he assigns himself like, so He's has this noir period that he's really into. And yeah, like now he's in his doctor. I think that's a great, that's a great comparison. But like, that was also one of the big draws for me is I love noir. And so right. he's like obsessing, he's like in this genre. But the other piece about him trying to say like, well, you know, cause there's a number of times in his narration and th- within X Factor Investigations where he talks about. About like well this is awfully noir or like this is feeling inadequately noir to me right now it's like it's also about performing masculinity for him as well right because mm-hmm. this is like how you can display your unquestionable manliness towards the world and this is like how you can be a fuck-up and still be celebrated as a hero because Absolutely. the protagonists of noir are fuck ups, but they're still the, the protagonist they're still like to the centers and hero, they're still the hero. So he can be like okay well I can be flawed and I can be brooding and. I don't have to be like well balanced and everything to still be the protagonist of this story, but i'm certainly a man and i'm certainly going to get to fuck who I want. And so it's all very much tied into his idea of what it is to be a man.
0: Absolutely, and
1: it's and none of it's subtext. It's just text. It's just what he says, and his he, vo- he the voiceover narrate the fo- he has so much voiceover narration. Well, because for... it's
0: noir, right? You know, exactly. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's it's it, it it like this was just um, <sighs> despite all the really, in retrospective, completely clearly fucked up stuff in the story. Like, of course, I liked this. This is like,
0: you know, here's my perspective on it. My favorite show. Probably to this day, and I'm not saying it's the best show ever made, but probably to this day <laughs> is Angel, the Buffy spinoff, ah, okay. which is a noir detective show mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. a vampire in Los Angeles. And they do magical noir detective stuff. X Factor Investigations feels very informed by that show to me. That show had just wrapped when X Factor Investigations starts. Oh, out. interesting. And like. Monet is a little bit of the Cordelia, right? Like, there's a, you know, there's like, there's stuff there that I think you can draw lines from a little bit. So, of course, X-Factor Investigations was up my alley because it reminded me of a show that I had loved that had just been ended and had been ended in a way that I didn't like because I didn't like what happened to Cordelia. So... Mm -hmm. You know, it was a complicated thing. But that genre, that like sort of sci-fi fantasy noir is always appealing. That's Blade Runner. Like it's so many yeah. things that that are appealing in that way. And so I picked it up. I was reading it. It was because I didn't read Gen X that regularly. It was sort of my main introduction to Monet, who became mm. one of my favorite characters. Mm-hmm. I had always liked Siren. So I was like, sure, why not? And it was right after they had killed off Banshee in Deadly Genesis, which had really pissed me off. But they then did kind of a switcheroo where it's like we fridged the dad so that the daughter gets a storyline. Now, this is to go back to Terry's baby for a minute. And I don't want to get too deep in the weeds because there is a Terry Cassidy episode on the horizon in the next couple months. But my issue with x-factor investigations more than anything else if we're putting layla miller aside because Hmm. she's a problem unto herself but i like layla well we'll get into it (laughs) if we put layla aside for a moment my issue is specifically in the way that terry is written as crazy like from the very beginning like she's delusional she's maladapted. She's, And it's not that I'm opposed to characters dealing with mental illness, but it always feels to me like the story is doing it at Terry's expense. Hmm. That it is kind of laughing at her And the baby thing to me is just the cruelest thing you could do to that character. And if it then freed her up to be a superhero, because like what you're saying is you don't want these women characters saddled with a baby that then takes them out of the action. It didn't, though, because she had a complete nervous breakdown and left the book. She comes back eventually, but then she pivots off into being the Morrigan and disappears into the night.
1: Well, the thing is, though, like her refusal to admit that her dad was dead is actually not crazy, like especially in light of
0: how we view. Well, yes, it's it, it is, now. right, because she's actually correct. Yeah, he does eventually come back yeah. because, of yeah. course, he does. Yeah. But in the story itself, that's not really how it's positioned,
1: I guess. But but it still is within the comic and still within a serial story in which it I, I can see the argument you're making, but it still to me seemed like, well, the comic knows he's going to come back too. This is a meta joke about how he's going to come back because he is and he did. I don't
0: know. I don't know. It's just the way that all of the other characters treat her about, like it's. there have been lots of throwaway jokes like that. Like, you know, Peter Quill being like, I don't want to have to die and come back from the dead. And Kitty Pride is like, you would hate being an X-Man. You're like, there, it's one thing to just have throwaway jokes, but she's so insistent and, She's so disrespected by everyone around her, and they all treat her like a crazy person in a way that I found I found it mean-spirited, just what gets heaped on top of her over and over again over the course of that story. I find the writing of Rain similarly kind of mean-spirited. Oh, Rain, I mean, Jesus, yeah. And I don't even like that character, but a lot of the reasons I don't like that character are because of the way Peter David has written that character since the 90s because after New Mutants, he's sort of the architect of her storyline. Yeah, yeah, Every time she comes back, I don't like what happens. So it's <laughs> just not, it's not great. To go back to Siren for a moment, the wildest thing that happens in the beginning of that 90s X Factor run is it turns out that one of Jamie's dupes had gone rogue long ago. This is a retcon. And that dupe is being manipulated by mr sinister and all kinds of stuff and tries to kill jamie to become the new jamie prime and it turns out that this dupe is from fallen angels and that he had drugged jamie back on muir island and taken his place on that trip and that jamie just never thought to tell anyone about it i guess because the shadow king hit right after that Yeah, But so in Executioner's song, Siren is now on X-Force. And when they meet up, Jamie has to explain to her that the Jamie she got to know really well. And the implication is that they were dating. It's not said like explicitly, but it seems pretty clear. It wasn't me. And she's like, well, but they're all you. Like you remember. He's like, I do have the memories, but I have no emotional attachment to them. Yeah. Which is sort of the first sign for her that it was probably time to not talk to this guy
1: anymore. Yeah. 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 (laughs) It
0: never goes well for her. Or really anyone. Well, right. (laughs) Then as X-Factor Investigations went on, there's just, there's an undeniable fact about that book, which is that he fucks Monet and Siren wolfsbane wants to fuck him and he marries layla miller like every girl on that team is either sexually infatuated with him or actually fucks him and he like and he treats them all like garbage and he also
1: implies that he thinks richter is into him too before richter comes out yeah
0: and he's not wrong, though. But yeah. it's like the thing no, is, everyone like, is into yeah. him. That's the thing yeah. about that book that Well, I that's found. because
1: he's Peter David's protagonist. And so of course he's going to have everybody
0: want to have him do that. And that's the issue. And I think that is where the character loses people sometimes, is this is a character that I feel like, you wouldn't get away with, especially at that time, if the character was female.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there probably wouldn't be a woman writing the book and like making a, her avatar in the first place because nobody lets women write things, generally speaking. back
0: But then. you look at Jessica Jones mm-hmm. as an example. There was so much more fan blowback to Jessica Jones as like a Mary Sue character at that time. Than you ever see about Madrox, whose powers expand dramatically basically every issue, who is quickly revealed to be part of a precursor race of mutant kind. This is never talked about again, so don't worry about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I'd forgotten until somebody made a joke about that in the tweet responses. I was like, Damien Tripp is about as big a don't worry about it as there could be, but we'll get there in the character file, I guess. He becomes of cosmic significance, significance to the multiversal timelines, and everyone wants to fuck him, and it's just a lot. It's mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. It worked for me up to a point, and then the book just, to me, got too mean. And I, I, it was the baby thing. I was like, this is... Like, you've already tied her up with a ball gag and beaten the shit out of her. Like, Terry goes through it in that book. And that's noir, right? But, like... Uh, It's this, the violence against her specifically is always so visceral. And then to do that to her, I was just like, this is just at this point cruelty. And I don't want to read more of this. So I fell off for a long time. I I picked it back up when Havoc and Polaris showed up. Hmm. Okay. And Layla was an adult and all kinds of weird shit was happening. (laughs) And I was not super crazy about that either. But, you know, I read that for a while and then it pivoted into Hell Lords and I was out. Again, because that plot is bananas.
1: This was the only X book I was reading at those times, except for new
0: X-Men. Morrison.
1: Yeah, which I wasn't even, I didn't read it till it was in trade, really. Mm -hmm. So this was sort of the only ongoing... X-Men books I read I read I read it the whole way through like including like yeah like the hell stuff which was irritating I was still just like I'm just too invested in this I'm not going to stop reading it
0: well I mean that's a Peter David thing right like he can't help himself like Supergirl became all about hell every book he writes they go to hell eventually just so weird because like we're jews and like I he's jewish
1: like this is not if he was
0: like a really obsessive catholic writer i would get it but i'm like what's the fascination the fixation on christian hell it's like very well it's exotic i suppose i guess it's just such a poor fit for these stories
1: yeah and i don't think it it just doesn't make sense It,
0: it wasn't good here's the thing claremont and I think, in part, this is probably because of the comics code. Limbo, Ilyana's realm, is exactly what you want. It's not hell from the Bible. It's a demon world that demons live in, and there's weird magic, and we can just roll with that. Mm-hmm. Once you start going to literal hell, I just think it gets weird because it starts to presuppose Christianity as like a it's real thing, yeah. Yeah, and that doesn't jive really with the Marvel universe, where yes, Mm -hmm. like there is like a a, you know the one above all, like there there are things that are implied to be like the God Yahweh or whatever, but it's just too weird in the nitty. It's not a question you want to ask, right? Like I feel the same way about the whole arc to get Nightcrawler out of heaven in Amazing X Men. I didn't like that at all. Yeah, it doesn't make sense in this world. With this, Layla becomes sort of as she always is throughout this run the avatar of the problem for me which is that when her mutant power is finally revealed it's that she has the ability to resurrect people if they've just died in front of her like there's a time limit but they come back without their soul and that opens so many questions to the point where now on Krakoa, readership is like, well, what about the soul? How does the soul factor into this? And the point is, like, it doesn't because we're not dealing with the soul as a metaphysic. Yeah. You know, Ten of Swords showed that whatever we consider the soul is involved in the process, so you can, like, rest assured that these are the real people. But how does Layla's power interact with Krakoa and Resurrection? Hopefully we never find out, and they just don't <laughs> worry about it because it doesn't yes. make a lick of sense.
1: But to get to the the, the point about souls and identity, I mean... What's interesting for me really about the character of of Jamie is that you, it's something intrinsically like postmodern about Mm -hmm. a character who is just reproducing himself as an endless site of production where he can create more work, produce more work, and then synthesize that back to himself. He is like endless, reproducible, and there is just no fixed individual identity. He's a scientist. He's a doctor. He's a priest. He's whatever he thinks he should be in that moment and can send himself off to do. I just don't think any other character has really had that opportunity potential. And I think it's interesting that most characters' response to him, uh, the, there's the characters who want to sleep with him because he's Peter David's protagonist and he's written to be that. But if you're not that, your feeling is that he's irritating. And I love that that's like, either you find him incredibly irritating or you want to sleep with him. Very divisive.
0: So I have a very complicated relationship to Jamie Madrax on that level, which is, it's twofold. I mostly find him really irritating, but there is a sexual allure to him that is to me somewhat undeniable. And I think that it starts with his power because if you are me a gay kid reading this, the furtive appeal of a power where you could make five of yourself and then the five of you could do whatever you want together and it wouldn't be... Wrong, and that's something <laughs> and he that's been played that. with a
1: bunch. Yeah, his character talks about this. Peter but... David
0: has one of them ask the other one, "If you and I were to, you know, would it be incest or masturbation or what?" The one thing I don't like about that panel is the implication that they haven't, which is bullshit. You know, yeah, no, have. there's no chance in hell. I instead assume they're in public, and he's using he's framing it as a hypothetical because they're thinking about the philosophical question of it. Yes. But so it was something that I found very exciting because if this is a puberty metaphor, the idea of like you can create infinite male forms was like very exciting. There was also lots of fan fiction at the time that (laughs) employed all of these things to their logical extension. I mentioned on the one of the most recent Patreon bonus episodes I was asked, like, what was a fanfic that you read, you know, back then? And I was like, there was this fanfic about Jamie and Lorna and Gambit playing strip poker. And then, like, Lorna's tired and goes to bed. And then, like, things get spicy with Remy and the dupes. (laughs) And I'm pretty gambivalent, as I've said on this show many times. I love it. But (sighs) I quite enjoyed that story that I read at, like, 14 or whatever on the internet. And uh, it has... There is a fondness for Jamie Madrox that I can't quite let go of because he was this enticing sexual fantasy to me as like a young, you know, confusing, conflicted gay boy. Right. There's also the fact that in X-Men The Last Stand, which was not a great movie, but he was in it, he was played by Eric Dane pre Grey's Anatomy and was extremely, extremely hot. So then that huh. just compounded the... And he's evil in that. So he was just like... Okay. A, he was like a bad guy who was Eric Dane and could make like seven of himself. And I was like, mm, this is a... This I is never a saw happening. that movie
1: because it looked really bad. But um, that's really funny. You know, you know it's interesting because it's like... I. I mentioned, like, I was sort of a solitary comics fan. Like, I didn't know a ton of other comics readers until, like, I met other people who were kind of into Vertigo stuff that I knew from the mm-hmm. off scene. So I didn't have a ton of, like, X-Men friends. And I certainly wasn't part of online communities around those things. I didn't have internet till I was in college. Like, I'm old. So we, like, I mean, other people I knew had internet, but I didn't have internet till I was in college. Gotcha. So, like, I, I wasn't part of any online forums. I wasn't. Like I never like did a mass multiplayer online RPG thing with like none of this. I just read comics sometimes when I when I was able to borrow or acquire them through various means. So I I'm not surprised that there is like a great font of creative works that have been developed about him. But of
0: porn, it was like there was yeah, a lot of yeah. there was a lot of gay porn, gay fanfic, porn slash fanfiction on the internet about Jamie Madrox. Yeah. I will always kind of have a soft spot in my heart for him because of that. But then when you read X Factor Investigations, I found him so insufferable. But that's like, the reason that that works is because the character that I most enjoyed in X Factor Investigations was Monet. And Mm -hmm. Monet is exactly on the same page there where she's like, yeah, I want to fuck him. Also, this guy is so obnoxious. Yeah. And like, once she figures out that he's been two-timing her, she's done. Yeah. Oh, she's so great. She is so great. I've said I think she's the only character who makes it out of that book relatively unscathed. Alive, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Like she's the survivor, the final girl at the end yes. of X-Factor Investigations.
1: But, you know, the thing is like Peter David writes him making so many questions about his sexual capacity and his sexual attraction through Madrox and through X Factor investigations that there's like, you know, like if you were going to ask me like, who's a top level character who you're like, this person is queer. What the fuck is wrong with you for not acknowledging it? He's not at the top of my list, but Peter David has him talking about that an awful lot
0: at a time when it was not normal for characters to be talking about that on the page.
1: Exactly. And like prior to him having Richter and Shatterstar come together, he has him talking about that.
0: And he has Madrox clock that Richter and Shatterstar are a thing, are a thing. and make before a joke they, about it yes. before it yes. ever happened. like a
1: while like before. before. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It also, any, anyone for whom there's a countless number of is some of those will be queer. Some of those will be a woman. Like some of those will be everything, you know. That
0: is established pretty quickly that there are queer dupes.
1: Yeah. Like in, in the Madrox mini, like yeah. he hits on what's his name. So there's that. That's, that's, that's compelling. What as you well. just said
0: about one of them being a woman, that would be fascinating. They've never done that, but I think, but clearly, well, cause it would be a charged thing to do. A, right. Exactly. But I think that much like the doctor finally regenerating into a woman on doctor who it's one of those things where it's like, I can't believe they haven't done that yet. You know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think now might actually be a good time to do the Cerebro character file because Mm -hmm. we've kind of been talking around how complicated his story (laughs) is. And I think I'll just give it to them straight, so to speak. Okay. Then we will come back for more with Ilana Levin. We'll talk about Ilana's favorite Madrox storylines and less favorite Madrox storylines. And then we will jump into questions from listeners like you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. James Arthur Madrox, usually called just Jamie or Madrox, but also well-known as The Multiple Man, is a classic X-Men supporting character who became a major player through Peter David's extensive work on the secondary title X-Factor. Created by Len Wein, Chris Claremont, and John Buscema, Madrox first joined X-Factor when it relaunched under David and Larry Stroman in 1991 as a government-contracted supergroup led by Havoc and Valerie Cooper. Over a decade later, Madrax would become the protagonist of The Relaunch, 2006's X-Factor Volume 3, with returning writer Peter David, in which the team is reimagined as a film noir-style detective agency. After many years under the control of this one writer, Madrax had a memorable turn under writer Matt Rosenberg, first in a miniseries of his own, and then Rosenberg's run on Uncanny X-Men. He now stars in X-Corp by writer Tini Howard. Jamie first appears in February 1975's Giant Size Fantastic Four No. 4, written by Len Wein and Chris Claremont with art by John Buscema. This issue came out only a few months before Wein and Dave Cochran would revolutionize the X-Men franchise forever with Giant Size X-Men No. 1. Initially conceived by Len Wein, Jamie was to have the name Jamie Xerox with a Z and two R's rather than Madrox, but there was concern that the Xerox Corporation would sue. This first story pits him against the Fantastic Four when his special full-body costume, which suppresses his mutant duplication power, begins to malfunction, and the influx of electrical energy begins driving him insane. We learn his tragic origin story. Manifesting his mutation from birth, Jamie was taken to live on an isolated farm in Kansas by his parents, nuclear scientist Daniel Madrox and his wife Joan. Jamie's father was friends with Charles Xavier, who designed a special learning computer for Jamie and helped him get the containment suit in the first place. Growing up alone, save for his parents and the computer, Jamie was kept away from civilization to avoid drawing attention from anti-mutant bigots. When a tornado blew through the farm and killed his parents, Jamie continued to work the land himself, miserable and alone. The suit eventually became faulty as no one was performing maintenance, and as it drew electrical energy from the world around him, he felt drawn in a fugue state all the way to New York City. Charles Xavier helps the Fantastic Four stop a horde of Madrox duplicates, and Reed Richards is able to repair the containment suit. Jamie trains for a bit with Professor Xavier, but isn't interested in joining the X-Men. Instead, under new writer Chris Claremont, he becomes a laboratory assistant to the X-Men's ally, Dr. Moira McTaggart, at the Muir Island Research Facility off the coast of Scotland. Eventually, Moira is able to help Jamie train his powers to the point that he no longer requires the containment suit to maintain control. He's happy not to be alone, and bonds first with Moira, and then with former X-Men Alex Summers and Lorna Dane, a.k.a. Havoc and Polaris, when they come to Muir Island to recuperate from a brainwashing ordeal. In 1979's famous Proteus arc, Moira's secret son, Kevin McTaggart, a.k.a. Proteus, or Mutant X, manages to escape from the cell where Moira has imprisoned him for many years. Proteus is a dangerous, reality-warping mutant whose power is so great that he burned out his physical body. He must jump into the bodies of others to continue to have physical form, but these hosts quickly burn out and die themselves. One of Jamie's duplicates ends up hosting Proteus, and when it dies, Jaime suffers terrible psychic feedback. After the X-Men defeat Proteus, Cyclops asks Jamie to join them, as Banshee is retiring due to an injury to his vocal cords. Jamie again declines and remains with Banshee and Moira on Muir Island, where he continues to be a one-man staff for the laboratory. He hangs out in the background for years in this status quo until the 1987 miniseries Fallen Angels by Joe Duffy and Carrie Gammel, where he and Moira, accompanied by Banshee's daughter Teresa Terry Cassidy, aka Siren, a new resident of the Muir Island facility, travel to New York in an effort to find Sunspot and Warlock, two of the new mutants who have gone missing. Using a portable Cerebro device, Jamie and Terry scour the city, with Jamie widening the search by duplicating. One of his dupes has a number of meaningful experiences in the city, and realizes it doesn't want to be reintegrated into Jamie Prime, as this would be tantamount to death. Terry and Jamie manage to find Sunspot and Warlock with the street gang called the Fallen Angels, who help recover the rogue duplicate after he's badly injured. Jamie understands the dupes' request not to be reabsorbed, even if it means he can't heal the dupes' injuries. This injured Jamie is later struck during an altercation with the aliens of the Coconut Grove, don't worry about it, and produces a dupe of his own, suggesting that Jamie Prime is not the only Jamie who can duplicate. The aliens slay the new dupe to make a point, and the injured dupe realizes he's being selfish and agrees to be reabsorbed. After the crisis is over, Sunspot and Warlock depart, but Jamie and Terry decide to stay with the Fallen Angels for a while to keep them on the straight and narrow. This was presumably to lead into a second Fallen Angels miniseries, but such a book never materialized, and the next time we see Siren and Multiple Man, four years later, in 1991's franchise-wide event The Muir Island Saga, they're back to working on Muir Island, where they wind up possessed by the Shadow King. You don't have to worry about the Muir Island saga, honestly. The most important thing is that in the aftermath, the X-Men and X-Factor teams reintegrate into one group. The name X-Factor is appropriated by U.S. government official Valerie Cooper, the president's special advisor on mutant affairs, whose previous team of operatives, Mystique's Freedom Force, has fallen apart over the last year. This leads to the relaunch of X-Factor under writer Peter David and artist Larry Strowman, in which Val Cooper invites Jamie, alongside Havoc, Polaris, Guido Carosella, a.k.a. Strong Guy, and Rain Sinclair, a.k.a. Wolfsbane, to become part of a new X-Factor, a team of mutant heroes under contract with the federal government, replacing Freedom Force as the officially sanctioned mutant supergroup based in Washington, D.C. Before the team can do their first press conference, Jamie is targeted by an unknown assassin. He sends a dupe to answer the door, and is horrified when the dupe is shot to death immediately. Jamie tries to reabsorb the corpse, but it isn't possible, and this makes him wonder existentially about whether the dupes really are constructs as he's always imagined, or whether his power in fact creates real people. At the big press conference, he's attacked again by the assassin. Another Jamie, who claims our Jamie is an imposter. X-Factor isn't able to figure out which Jamie is the real one, and the Jamie we've been following in the book is declared a fraud when he isn't able to remember his adventure with Moira and Terry in the Fallen Angels miniseries. The assassin Jamie is declared to be the real Jamie Prime by a polygraph expert, and absorbs our Jamie into himself. This all turns out to be a very complicated retcon. The Jamie who appeared in Fallen Angels was actually a renegade dupe who developed independent thought and rebelled against Jamie. He drugged the real Jamie Prime and took his place on the trip to New York, For some reason, this was never discussed by anyone previously. I guess they were distracted by the Shadow King? Don't worry about it. In the present, the new multiple man leaves X-Factor to meet with his true employer, the villain Mr. Sinister, who's teamed up with U.S. Senator Stephen Shaffrin, who's secretly a probability-altering mutant. Chaffron wants to use X-Factor for press, and used his power to prevent Jamie from feeling the experiences and activities of the Renegade duplicate. The polygraph expert who declared the Renegade to be the real Jamie Prime was actually sinister in disguise. It's honestly a bit much, but that's sinister for you, I guess. He loves a needlessly complicated plan. Eventually, Jamie Prime is able to reassert control of the multiple-man gestalt, as his personality is stronger than the artificially enhanced Renegade dupes personality. Some issues later, back to normal, Jamie and his new teammate, Pietro Maximoff, a.k.a. Quicksilver, investigate a murder apparently committed by a mutant woman called Rhapsody. A young music teacher, Rhapsody lost her job when a visible aspect of her mutation, blue skin, manifested, and the school board objected to a mutant teacher. The ringleader of the vote was then murdered two days later. Jamie is smitten with Rhapsody and tries to convince Pietro to give her a chance. He nearly helps Rhapsody break out of jail, but she accidentally lets slip a detail she shouldn't know, which reveals she did kill the man, by accident, through an overzealous application of her entrancing mutant power. Jamie is heartbroken and leaves her to her fate. During the franchise-wide event Executioner's Song, a misunderstanding leads to a battle between X-Factor and X-Force, a new paramilitary group that includes Jamie's friend Siren, Terry Cassidy. Terry is confused to learn that Jamie she bonded with during and after Fallen Angels was actually a dupe, but she's content with the fact that Jamie Prime has his memories. Until Jamie reveals he has no emotional attachment to those memories and therefore no deeper emotional bond with Terry. After Peter David's departure from the book, Scott Lobdell and J. M. DeMatteis do some fill-in work for a while on X Factor. The team discovers Genosian mutates infected by the deadly Legacy virus, and Jamie finds himself alone with a mutate who is dying from an attack of the end stage of the infection. He creates a duplicate so that he can perform heart massage while the dupe does mouth-to-mouth. The dupe doesn't have a hazmat suit and is infected by the virus while saving the mutate's life. When Jamie reabsorbs the dupe, he too is infected. He hides this from his friends. Upon their return to Washington, Jamie splits himself into three duplicates at all times in an effort to slow the progression of the virus. Still, eventually his powers begin going out of control, the hallmark of legacy virus infection. His dupes begin manifesting drastically different personalities, representing different parts of Jamie's larger whole. The rest of X-Factor wonders what's wrong, but it takes time for Polaris to figure it out. Shortly thereafter, X-Factor comes into conflict with Rathadastor, the supervillain Haven, a mutant who believes herself divine and has formed a New Age cult. Because Haven was able to cure Rain of the after effects of Genosian mutate conditioning, one of Jamie's more gullible duplicates becomes convinced she can cure the legacy virus. Jamie's power fully begins collapsing during a battle, and he realizes he's dying. He abandons the team and goes to Haven, who is happy to perform another miracle and attempt to cure him. She fails, and he drops dead at her feet. This is the climax of 1994's X-Factor 100. Two years later, new writer Howard Mackey brings Jamie back in X-Factor 129, revealing in a retcon that the Jamie who died of Legacy was actually a dupe. The psychic shock of the dupe's death from Legacy, which overloads mutant powers, left Jamie amnesiac, though free, of the virus, and he began wandering Washington, D.C. He was taken in by federal agents, who intend to use him as a military asset, but he's rescued by Havoc, who has at this time apparently betrayed X-Factor to join the Dark Beast's new iteration of The Brotherhood of Mutants. Jamie refuses to join Havoc in the Brotherhood and strikes off on his own. The federal agents direct X-Factor to capture him, not informing them that their target is Jamie. When he's discovered by the team, which now includes press-gang supervillains like Mystique and Sabretooth, he doesn't trust them even after they let him go. X-Factor and the Brotherhood each keep trying to recruit Jamie, but he refuses to join either team. Instead, he gravitates toward Guido, who had left X-Factor after a heart attack and winds up targeted by federal agents just as Jamie was. Jamie kidnaps Guido to prevent the agents from taking him into custody, but when Guido suffers another heart attack, Jamie's left guilt-stricken and departs once Guido is stable. This is the last Jamie story for a while, until the final arc of Mackey's X-Factor, where it's revealed Havoc's work with the Brotherhood was an undercover gig. Jamie's open to rejoining the team, which has divested itself at last completely from the U.S. government, but Havoc is apparently killed in an explosion, and the book is relaunched into the alternate reality story Mutant X, also by Howard Mackey. Jamie returns to background character status and resumes his duties as Moira McTaggart's assistant on Muir Island. He has a fun adventure with Forge on Genosha, now a mutant sovereign state ruled by Magneto, in the 1999 Uncanny X-Men Annual by Ben Robb and Anthony Williams. Two years later, Jamie returns in Joe Casey's 2001 run on Uncanny X-Men. By this point, Moira McTaggart has been murdered by Mystique, her facility destroyed, and Jamie is recruited to the X-Corps, an international mutant police force formed by Banshee. Jamie is the entire support staff of the X-Corp headquarters in Paris, but he falls prey to the telepathic powers of Martinique Wingard, the second mastermind, who is helping Mystique infiltrate X-Corp. Martinique uses the Madrox dupe she's able to possess to launch terrorist attacks in Paris, and X-Corp disbands in disgrace. Jamie joins X-Corp, hard P, no S, an international outreach organization called X-Corporation that is a new venture by Professor Xavier. He ends up on a mission in the Channel Tunnel with the rest of X-Corp's Paris branch in an early arc of Grant Morrison's New X-Men, in which the genetic experiment called Weapon 12 is able to infect and possess people, creating a hive mind army. Jamie helps Xavier build a hive mind army of his own, duplicating enough bodies for Xavier to pilot and battle Weapon 12 directly. Another two years later, Jamie is the star of the 2004 miniseries Madrox by Peter David and Pablo Raimondi, part of the mature street-level Marvel Knights franchise. Here he's extensively reimagined as a film noir-style detective, and opens an agency in New York City's mutant town with his old teammates Guido and Rain. They eventually decide to call the company X-Factor Investigations. David establishes in a Ratcon that for many years, Jamie has been sending out dupes to explore the world and live independent lives, eventually returning to be reabsorbed and share new knowledge and expertise with the greater Madrox whole. His powers have also changed since his apparent death from Legacy. The twist from the Legacy Virus story, where his dupes now represented individual aspects of his personality rather than regular copies, is emphasized even further, and he no longer absorbs physical injuries when he absorbs a dupe. The Madrox Mini is a murder mystery, with one of Jamie's dupes as the victim. Jamie is able to absorb him right before he dies, but is only able to pick up a few fleeting memories. Traveling to Chicago, he meets a woman he saw in his dying dupes mind, Sheila DeSoto, a local mobster's girlfriend. Jamie's startled to learn that Sheila and his dupe had actually gotten married, and Sheila turns out to be an evil and dangerous mutant herself, manipulating both of her lovers in an attempt to control the Chicago underworld. She winds up killed by her mobster boyfriend by the end of the mini, which leads directly into the 2006 relaunch of X-Factor by Peter David. This new series, spinning out of The Decimation, in which all but about 200 mutants worldwide abruptly lost their powers on M-Day, establishes X-Factor investigations as the premier detective agency tackling mutant concerns. Jamie has used his power to win Who Wants to Be a Millionaire by being his own lifeline, and uses the winnings to expand his office and hire more employees. His old friend Terry, aka Siren, and his ex-corps and Excorp corp teammate Monet Sankhoi. When his other Excorp corp teammate Richter attempts suicide after losing his powers in the decimation, Jamie tries to have a dupe talk him down. This dupe turns out to be a rogue element, the X-Factor in Jamie that lies to himself. This Duke pushes Richter off the ledge, but luckily Monet is able to save him, and he's eventually convinced to join the team despite not being a mutant anymore. In this same initial story, Jamie meets Layla Miller, a young teenage girl who begins meddling in the agency's affairs because of her apparent knowledge of the future. Much of the early run of X Factor involves the agency going up against a rival firm called Singularity Investigations, run by Damien Tripp and his son, Damien Tripp Jr., Layla's strange knowledge of future events helps X-Factor stay ahead of the game, and eventually Tripp summons Jamie to his offices and offers to buy them out for $50 million. Jamie, who's been investigating the cause of the decimation, assumes this means he's getting too close. Tripp tries to kill Jamie, but the Jamie at the meeting is actually a dupe, and Jamie manages to get a DNA sample of both Tripp's senior and junior. Testing reveals the Trips are genetically distinct from both Homo sapiens and Homo superior, and also that they are the same person. When Jamie discovers that Cyclops and the X-Men have concealed the truth about the decimation, that it was caused by the Scarlet Witch, who'd gone crazy, the team becomes further independent from Xavier's establishment. Around this time, the team also discovers that one of Jamie's explorer dupes became an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Jamie confronts Layla about the decimation, because she knew the truth all along. She tells him this is among their first of many arguments, and that there'll be plenty more after they're married. Since she's like 13 years old, this declaration disturbs him, as it should. After a press conference where Jamie and his teammates take a public stand against the U.S. government's Superhuman Registration Act, part of the company-wide event civil war, X-Factor celebrates by getting totally hammered. In the morning, after absorbing a dupe he finds in his bathroom, Jamie discovers that apparently, the night before, either he or the dupe had sex with both Terry and Monet. He can't remember anything, and isn't sure which of the two women, if either at all, he himself slept with. Before he can sort this out, he's dragged into another case protecting a scientist from Singularity investigations. Singularity's been trying to recreate the legacy virus, which pisses Jamie off for obvious reasons. Unfortunately, Guido turns out to be a sleeper agent for Singularity, and murders the scientist before he can give X-Factor any evidence. Monet is at least able to telepathically free Guido from the sleeper programming. Attacking Singularity directly to retrieve the evidence themselves, the detectives meet a third version of Damien Tripp, this one an Old Man. He reveals he's from the future, working with two versions of himself from earlier in the timeline, and that in his future, X-Factor managed to reverse the decimation. According to Tripp, this led to an authoritarian dystopia ruled by mutants. Monet verifies that Tripp at least believes he's telling the truth, and one of Jamie's jeeps runs away, apparently afraid. In fact, this is the X-Factor dupe from the first issue, and it turns out this rogue factor in Jamie's psyche comes from a repressed memory. In a major retcon, we learn that way back on the farm in Kansas, Jamie and his parents were approached by Damien Tripp. Tripp told the Madroxes that Jamie wasn't actually a mutant, he was something called a killcrop, or a changeling, an evolutionary precursor to mutants that manifest powers at birth rather than at puberty. Tripp is also a killcrop, and argues he should train Jamie instead of Xavier. When Jamie's parents refuse, Tripp artificially whips up the tornado that kills them. He then represses Jamie's memories of ever meeting him, and it is that hidden trauma that has manifested as the renegade X-Factor dupe. That dupe then blows up the Singularity headquarters, killing both himself and the two younger versions of Damien Tripp. Upon his death, Jamie receives the suppressed memories. As an aside, if this kill crop thing is why Damien Tripp reads in DNA tests as neither human nor mutant, and Jamie is also supposed to be a kill crop, you'd think Moira McTaggart, the world's leading expert on mutant genetics and the X gene, would have noticed something weird in Jamie's tests. Just putting it out there, don't worry about it. Anyway, it turns out Jamie's been fucking both Terry and Monet ever since that first mix-up night with the Duke because he's apparently a total scumbag. His therapist, Doc Sampson, encourages him to tell the two women the truth and they are both, understandably, furious with him. While they work out their anger, Jamie decides to travel around and gather all the explorer dupes still out there. He manages to reabsorb Jamie Madrock's agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., but can't bring himself to forcibly absorb Reverend John Maddox, a dupe who settled down as a small-town pastor with a wife and child in Vermont. Mistaken for John by his family, Jamie sees the happy domesticity he could have if he chose it. The reverend is prepared to murder Jamie Prime to maintain his independence, but Jamie decides that the dupe has earned his own life. He departs, leaving the Maddox family alone. The last explorer dupe Jamie needs to find is a private eye dupe in Detroit, and Jamie is shocked to discover he's become a shipless alcoholic. The dupe had learned something about Uber, a threat on the horizon, and doesn't want Jamie Prime to learn the horrible truth. Instead, he murders a corrupt chief of police he couldn't find a legal means of unseating, allowing himself to be killed in retaliation by the cops. Jamie Prime is unable to absorb the dying dupe because he'd also absorbed the drunkenness, and the situation is too dangerous. Instead, he returns to New York, where X-Factor is informed by Val Cooper about X-Cell, a terrorist group made up of decimated mutants. Layla isn't inclined to deal with them, but Jamie insists she tell him what she knows, and the group manages to handle the problem, or at least observe as the problem handles itself. Then a guy called Josef Huber shows up. Uber, get it? He claims he's a philanthropist aiming to protect mutants as an endangered species, and Jamie thinks it's a good idea. It turns out Huber is actually a villain called the Isolationist, who is bent on exterminating mutant kind once and for all to be free of his own power to copy mutations. X-Factor stops him without too much trouble, and honestly, I think the Detroit Explorer dupe was kind of being a drama queen about this. Then comes the franchise-wide event Messiah Complex, where the first mutant baby after M-Day is born, and various factions fight to protect or kill her. Just gonna point out that, again, this is is a baby who manifests as a mutant from birth and nobody says anything about changelings or kill crops, just to note. Forge is able to explain to Jamie and Layla that the decimation didn't just erase mutants from the present, it erased them from every possible future timeline. However, after the birth of baby Hope, the so-called mutant messiah, two future timelines have sparked again with mutant readings. Jamie is tasked with creating two dupes who can take a one-way trip into the future. When they each die in their respective timelines, Jamie will absorb their knowledge and memories, giving him an understanding of what had happened. One of the dupes heads off into a future timeline, and we promptly forget about him until much, much later, hold that thought. As the second one is climbing up to take his own jaunt, Layla jumps onto the machine and follows him into the future. Jamie is horrified, but Forge insists there's no way for him to retrieve anyone who got sent forward. Jamie is furious, but then he passes out. We see that the second dupe and Layla landed in Bishop's Future Timeline, where they were captured and taken to a concentration camp, branded permanently with the telltale M tattoo over one eye. In the camps, Layla is unapologetic about allowing this to happen to them, even though she had knowledge of the future. She introduces the dupe to a young bishop, who explains that the mutant messiah managed to reverse the decimation, but then caused the deaths of a million humans. This is what sparked the war that led to these camps. Layla realizes this is the knowledge they need. Bishop in the present, meaning adult Bishop, from later in this future, but he's in our present now. Do you follow me? I'm sorry. Time travel. Bishop in the present is a traitor who plans to murder Baby Hope and prevent his timeline from coming to pass. The dupe has completed his mission but refuses to leave Layla alone, so she kills him with a grenade. Back in the present, Jamie Prime wakes up with the memories of what happened in the camp and with the M. Tattoo brand for science fiction reasons that are silly. Don't worry about it. Jamie misses Layla and sinks into a deep depression. town has been all but abandoned this long after the decimation, and the villain Arcade ends up blowing up most of what's left. Val Cooper declares the area condemned and tries to force the new X-Factor to become a government operation again. They tell her to fuck off, basically, and move to Detroit. Oh boy. Okay, so here comes the baby. It turns out Terry is pregnant. Neither of them care whether the father was Jamie Prime or a dupe because they're all Jamie at the end of the day. And the good news manages to bring him out of his Layla-related depression. He begins secretly taking gigs for the government when Val Cooper exerts more pressure on him. Eventually, Val reveals the truth about these operations to Terry, which upsets her. And then she goes into labor. Terry names the baby Sean after her father Banshee, who had recently died in the franchise-wide event Deadly Genesis. She proposes marriage to Jamie, who accepts. Then Jamie takes his son in his arms for the first time, and to everyone's horror, absorbs the baby into his body. It turns out that Jamie's dupes, because they aren't the prime, are incapable of fathering children. Terry had gotten pregnant that blackout drunk night after the press conference, and it was indeed the dupe she slept with. This caused a strange phenomenon where instead of a normal dupe, the act impregnated Terry with a dupe fetus or something. I don't know, man. This whole thing sucks. Anyway, Terry goes into a violent rage, ripping at Jamie's chest with her nails and trying to get baby Sean back out of him. Later, when Jamie tries to comfort her, she breaks his fingers and tells him she'll kill him if she sees him again. Leaving and walking aimlessly, Jamie sinks into a suicidal depression. Finding he's walked to Vermont, he goes to visit Reverend John Maddox to inform him that since he's a dupe, he can't have fathered his son. His wife must have had an affair. This is clearly a goofy little retcon to explain why the Reverend had a child in the earlier story. Battlestar Galactica did the same thing once. Anyway, it turns out that the Reverend already knew about that and doesn't care. Jamie then draws a gun and tries to kill himself, wanting the Reverend to witness the end of Jamie Madrox. But then Layla Miller arrives from the future to stop him, now a beautiful woman not much younger than Jamie himself. Layla takes him with her back to the future, where he investigates timeline disturbances facing the Summer's Rebellion. He and Layla argue a little bit, and then they fuck. I... Hate this. Anyway, a time-traveling assassin from the future is the problem. His name is Cortex, and it turns out he's actually the other dupe Forge sent into a future timeline, remember that? Who got intercepted and transformed into an evil killing machine by Damien Tripp. Remember Damien Tripp? Don't worry about it. A Summers Rebellion fighter named Trevor Fitzroy saves the day, even though he had died in the battle. Layla finally reveals that her mutant power has nothing to do with her precognitive knowledge. In fact, she has the mutant power to revive the recently deceased. The catch is that anyone she resurrects will come back without their soul, becoming a sociopath. This is why Trevor Fitzroy became known to readers of the X-Men comics as Bishop's arch nemesis, the mass murderer who slaughtered the Hellions as part of the Upstarts game, because Layla Miller brought him back without a soul. I hate this. Anyway, Cortex is defeated, and Jamie and Layla get sent back in time, but they end up separated. Jamie lands in Detroit at X-Factor headquarters, where Terry refuses to speak to him. So Jamie departs with Guido to start a new agency back in New York. Soon the rest of the team shows up, except for Monet and Terry. Terry's closed down the agency and returned to her native Ireland, and Monet is going with her to keep an eye on her. Jamie's new agency reopens as X-Factor Investigations once again. It turns out Layla's in Latveria, don't worry about it. Eventually, she winds up back with the team, and Monet and Terry also return to the agency. Terry no longer has any romantic interest in Jamie, which is very convenient for a writer invested in Jamie and Layla's disturbing relationship, I guess. Jamie isn't sure he trusts Layla anymore because she's acting mysterious about her time in Latveria. Then she saves his life with the magic she learned there from Dr. Doom, and he proposes marriage. I hate this. Anyway, when Guido starts acting weird after a miraculous recovery from a terrible injury, Jamie begins wondering if Layla used her power to save him at the cost of his soul. She refuses to answer. Not long after this, Jamie himself is killed in battle, and Layla admits she did resurrect Guido. She thinks about doing it to Jamie, but she's prevented from acting in time, and he dies permanently. Jamie then begins hopping realities into other worlds, spontaneously popping into the place of another Jamie Prime who's just died. This is basically the plot of Howard Mackey's Mutant X from back in the 90s, and it's weird that Havoc and Jamie have now both done this. Anyway, Doctor Strange sends him back to Earth-616. Layla's overjoyed at his return and confesses that she resurrected Guido. She did it because she knew in advance that Guido's death was coming, and she'd begun to resent living a predestined life based on knowledge from her future self. This butterfly effect has changed the timeline, and Jamie's death was a ripple effect. Moreover, now that the timeline has shifted, Layla's knowledge of the future is beginning to fade. While Jamie was gone, he'd been replaced as leader by Havoc and Polaris. Jamie and Alex don't get along well as co-leaders, causing friction within the team. Then Terry becomes the new incarnation of the Irish death goddess, the Morrigan, and ascends into Fairyland or whatever. Listen, come back for a Terry episode in a couple months. I don't have time for this right now. A bunch of other people also quit the team, and Jamie's pissed off. He and Layla argue about it, and then they decide to run off to Vegas and elope. They get married, but the priest is killed by the ghost of Robert E. Lee. Yes, the historical figure of the Confederacy. I am not making this up. Don't worry about it. Anyway, then the Hell on Earth War begins, and you truly don't have to worry about it. Jamie exits the plot pretty quickly because Mephisto turns him into a demon. After the war is over, Layla tracks demon Jamie to Morocco, where her sorcery training isn't good enough to turn him back. So instead, she takes him home to his family farm in Kansas and chains him up in the barn. This relationship is so fucking weird, guys. Anyway, one day she tells him she's pregnant and Jamie is terrified he's going to hurt her and the baby. So he prays to the morrigan and Terry comes down from the higher planes or whatever to restore him with a miracle. She catches Jamie and Layla up on what happened to the rest of the gang like it's an 80s comedy. And Jamie and Layla decide to retire and live on the farm with their child. That's the end of X Factor Investigations. I'm serious, that's the end of the book. After a few cameo appearances elsewhere, Jamie pops up in the 2016 franchise-wide event Death of X, which kicks off the whole Inhumans versus X-Men situation. Inexplicably now living on Muir Island again and staffing Moira's old research facility, Jamie is the first mutant to die of the new disease called MPOX, brought on by the Terrigen Mist. Two years later, Marvel launched the 2018 miniseries Multiple Man by writer Matt Rosenberg and artist Andy McDonald. I'm too gay to understand time travel, and I do not want to explain this miniseries to you because I will fuck it up. And honestly, the whole point of it is that none of it matters. So don't worry about it, but do read it. It's cute. The gist is that one dupe managed to survive the whole MPOX thing, an evil sociopath dupe who'd been hermetically sealed away in a chamber. He then does a lot of time travel, lots of shenanigans ensue, and a dupe of that dupe of that dupe or something like that ends up using a serum developed by the old Jamie Prime and Hank McCoy to designate himself as the new Jamie Prime. This leads into Rosenberg's run on Uncanny X-Men, where Jamie, or at least a version of Jamie, becomes an official member of the X-Men for the first time. You don't have to worry about any of this stuff, because the new Jamie Prime from the miniseries and this Uncanny run dies at the end of the Uncanny run. Which leads to the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, in which Jamie Madrox is resurrected by the Power of the Five on the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. While he's mostly a background character for the first year or so of the Krakoa era, Jamie now stars in the series X-Corp by Tini Howard and Alberto Fauché, where he has leaned into his scientific studies and become vital to the production of Krakoa's Miracle Pharmaceuticals. Reluctantly serving on the board of X-Corporation at Monet's request, Jamie's marriage to Layla has become strained. He's missing their son's development, and sending dupes to babysit doesn't count as parenting. With Layla's knowledge of the future long gone by now, it's impossible to predict what will become of their family. And is this the original Jamie, or the Jamie from the miniseries? truly don't worry about it
2: x-men x-men
0: and we're back that was a long time traveling adventure through about a zillion timelines if you followed the plot of that multiple man miniseries as i related it to you congratulations because (laughs) i was really intimidated at the prospect of explaining any of it and i'm still not sure i did it right so Hopefully, if you really want to dig into that miniseries, you'll just pick it up. It's very recent. You can just buy it. Yeah, it's good. I really liked it. I don't have any problems with it, except insofar as I'm very confused. But it's <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> time travel storylines always kind of are not like I that once the paradoxes get involved, I really start to I'm like not a good I'm not good at math. It all feels- No, me like either. Like, math adjacent. Yeah. yeah, I hear uh-huh.
1: you. But no, if you're looking for a Jamie story where you get both what's compelling and what's irritating about him in one place and the story is not sexist, the multiple man miniseries <laughs> is like a good
0: place to st- is really a good place to start. I was very pleased with it. It's a five issue by Matthew Rosenberg and Andy McDonald. It's definitely a fun read, but it's crazy.
1: And that's where that panel i keep referencing myself from um like with b i mean i just think it's some of the best beast dialogue even like jamie you are so irritating i am so irritated right now stop hitting yourself like it's so good (laughs) like that panel i i was like thinking of like a million different uses and i did a review of it for a comic speed but like i was thinking of a million different uses of it as a meme it should be on the internet a lot more than it is the one of him hitting himself and Beast just explaining how irritated he is by this entire scenario um I just think it encapsulates the character and why I love it so very much
0: well that's a good segue into the next little section of our chat I'd love to hear about your favorite Jamie storylines this can be from I assume not pre-90s because there isn't that much pre-90s mm-hmm. but from 90s X Factor through to X Factor investigations through to everything that happened between them and after.
1: Yeah. I mean, for the longest time, one of my absolute favorite single issues of a comic was X Factor, the team goes to the therapist issue Mm -hmm. from the 90s. When I was on Shelf Dust, uh, when they had me, they're like, you could talk about any one individual issue, of anything you want. And I usually when proposed that, I do something Jack Kirby focused because that's like one of my big obsessions. But I was like, actually, I'm going to talk about the John Ostrander Suicide Squad issue where everybody goes to the therapist. Mm. Like, I love it when a team goes to the therapist.
0: Yeah, same. That's a beat I really enjoy. It's just so
1: good. So and like and, and so, yeah, the one from the 90s, this is a single one issue you could read. It.
0: Examinations.
1: It's a lot of fun.
0: it's right after Executioner's song, which is yep. wild. It's like immediately following the event. That's
1: why they're in therapy after Executioner's song. Oh, yeah, no, because it's been a
0: lot. It was a lot going on.
1: That's why you got to go to therapy, you know. So, um that issue highly recommend it. Still a pleasure. Like, yes, Dr. Sampson is really a terrible therapist and should be disbarred, <laughs> but he does it in a way that's good for reading purposes. Like, this is not how therapy works, guys, but it works well as a comic. Mm-hmm. The way he provokes the questions and answers from people. Um like this the the, the the character study in that one of Quicksilver was like when I was just like, yes, I get it. And he gets that's me. the best one. Quicksilver is like the me. It was like it's like oh, it was like the me character. Like when you ask me who I want to talk about, I'm like, I know I'm not allowed to do Quicksilver. So in lieu <laughs> of that, here's a list of other people who are not ADD children of Holocaust survivors like myself
0: tbd on quicksilver but i do have someone has dibs if i ever i know and it it really is going to come down to how the trial shakes out for me i need to Mm. see how that shakes out and if the trial shakes out in such a way i don't need it to be completely fixed but if they're a family again in whatever way Mm -hmm. then i'll think about it for him more so than for Wanda, just because frankly, there's so much Avengers stuff I would have to read to do a Wanda episode <laughs> that I don't know. Yeah. That I'm no, ever nobody get needs there. that. I hear you. I mean, I might do an episode that's just about her role in X Men comics. Yeah, but I feel like that wouldn't wouldn't quite be fair to her because it's eh. like a little bit in the '60s, and then as this genocidal antagonist, crazy person. Fair enough. It's like it, You don't really get any of her heroism if you're just looking okay. at X-Men comics. Okay, I get your point. I think that's part of the disconnect between her fandom and X-Men fandom is that if you're mm. an X-Men reader, she only really shows up to ruin the lives of all your favorite
1: characters. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, the, so the, the team goes to the therapist issues, both the X-Factor investigations and the 90s one. Super classic. I, I found the issues, you know, like in the immediate lead up to his death from legacy virus to be extremely compelling as well, frankly, again, Mm -hmm. like, you know, content warning for people dying of fake AIDS and like real trauma too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There is, there's one bit that I wanted to shout out because it's the one I always think of that is really scary And I don't remember which issue it's in, but it's in that arc, which is like basically 95 to 100. Right. (laughs) It's early in that arc. Basically, at this point, the legacy virus has been futzing with his powers so much that we get. And this is after Peter David had left the book, which is interesting because he picked up this theme so profoundly in X Factor Investigations one of the major effects of the legacy virus is that the dupes start having very distinct personalities. And there's this very weird two panels where, again, the queerness of Jamie Madrox that is inherent is really emphasized here. And it makes sense that it's emphasized in the storyline where he's dying of AIDS at that time, right? So it's this scene where like, he's on the phone with Guido. He's like, Look, Guido, I appreciate the sentiment, but he, I, we're not in the best of moods right now. And there's another Jamie sitting in shadow looking really scary. And the Jamie on the phone is basically acting like an abused girlfriend. Yeah. If you're looking at noir, yeah. the trope that's being used here is the girlfriend who is being abused on the phone with the person who could help her pretending everything is okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the Jamie in shadow is, hang up the bloody phone. And the Jamie on the phone is like, uh, gotta go now, Guido. But bye. That was Guido. He shut up, Jamie. Whatever you say, Jamie. It's psychosexual, it's disturbing. You get the vibe that this one Jamie is abusing the other Jamie in all kinds of ways that we're not quite seeing. I've never forgotten that page because I found it, as someone who was already thinking about, like, the sort of homoeroticism of Jamie and his power, to see that twisted by the virus into this abusive relationship was very disturbing to me. And I've never quite, it's never quite left my head.
1: I mean, the story is really... Interested in showing you his depression and him covering yeah. his depression and his refusal to acknowledge it in front of other people, and then other people refusing to take it seriously. Like when they do see it, they refuse to take it seriously.
0: Well, because it's like Jamie can't die. Jamie's yeah. the fun one. Jamie's right. our jokester. Jamie can't die.
1: And it's exactly like that shit is how that plays out in real life so yes. often. It's very well done.
0: Yeah. Matteis writes the last few issues leading up to X-Factor 100, which is the issue where he dies. That stuff is done really well. Yeah. Like you said, you stopped reading and didn't know he ever came back because guess what? It was pretty fucking devastating. Like, if you cared about that character, it was rough.
1: Also, like, you know, he gets Legacy Virus saving somebody.
0: Yes, he gets it from doing mouth to mouth on a dying man who he's trying to stabilize.
1: Yeah, it's like an incredibly self sacrificing thing. And then he just doesn't have, I think he feels like he is ashamed. be seen as physically weak Mm -hmm. and he's ashamed to be seen as being tainted like and and so he doesn't go and get met he doesn't go to get medical help and he doesn't want to face it about himself that he might be vulnerable in those ways it's very realistic like people are like this
0: ontologically what's really interesting about the scene where he contracts it is that he creates a dupe to do the mouth-to-mouth he thinks he's able to he can't bring himself to do it himself and the dupe looks at him like are you serious and he's like yes we have to do this and then absorbs the dupe afterward and the infection spreads to him. But he couldn't bring himself to physically enact it himself. And this is like right before he goes and
1: kills a bad guy by making a dupe inside the bad guy to blow him up. And like, yes. it was literally life or death situation. Like this is the kind of like, um, you he was about to be killed. So like no court of law was going to find him guilty of murder. Right. But it's like, but the comic understands how traumatic and disgusting that experience might have been mm-hmm. and it is and the thing like there's so much body horror to his powers that um i think it's easy to overlook like the the pock puck as in p-o-k sound effect that he uses that is it isn't being used anymore but for much of his existence was mm-hmm. the sound of jamie producing a new dupe it's like very cute and punchy but then the reabsorption and like the different dupes horror at being brought back into his body when he reaches across time and to like bring somebody in like there is a ton of body horror baked into this character yeah the questions of like what are the experiences that he's absorbing into himself that he doesn't want to have to absorb, but that he's going to get stuck with anyway. and He's constantly negotiating that for
0: himself as well. And to what degree are these real people? I mean, that's with the Reverend Maddox issue of ex yeah. Investigations, which is obviously a highlight of that early run. Yes. Where he comes across the dupe who has built a whole life for himself and can't bring himself to reabsorb the guy. Yeah, yeah. That stuff is baked in because at a certain point, you are creating siblings and then killing them.
1: Yeah, and um, that is what is happening. And they're you.
0: Yeah. But once they split off from you, they have their own lives, and then Mm -hmm. you negate that by taking them back into yourself.
1: Yeah, it's completely fucked. Um, You know, I think because he gets treated as labor, just a ceaseless supply of labor by so many people, like there are scenes where you have dupes that are just like happy to be created and reabsorbed because they just view themselves as being a means to an end but as soon as you have a dupe that says i don't want to get reabsorbed like don't do that that's not okay that's non-consensual have you been reading x corp yeah yeah i love x corp what x corp is doing is great i think this is an opportunity to really look at the implications of jamie's role as work and as literally a site of production I love the panel, like, where he responds to, like, with such disgust at Monet.
0: Because Monet viewed the dupes as disposable because you'll just absorb it all or whatever. And he's like, I didn't have a chance to reabsorb them. They had all been working and they have independent experiences that are now gone.
1: And that she doesn't appreciate or value them. And so he is a worker who is debating, like, how he wants to access power within the corporation. They're still, like, shitting on him, right? Because that's what people do. And so I think there's huge potential to really look at Jamie Madrox, both as like literal production and reproduction. And as well as looking at, as we see from the most recent issue, like the questions about him vis-a-vis his family. Yes. This is probably going to be the best Jamie comic, um, because I'm really happy to see them leaning into that. Because I hate when people treat him like, I love when characters treat him as an unending supply of labor because that is what people would do. But I hate when people don't act like that's significant or just brush that off. Like that's important and that's a problem.
0: Yeah, and one thing that was interesting to me is like, It's not just the characters who do it. It's also the writers. So you think about like when he does die in Death of X of Mpox, it's because after Peter David had him retire with Layla. To the farm, which makes no sense. Why would they go to a farm? Like that's whatever. (laughs) Whatever. I,
1: I, 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 if Layla hadn't been a child when they met, I would actually like them as a couple, but because she was a child when they met, It's not okay. But on no reality do I see him wanting to retire to a farm with someone. That's
0: just not in character. Yeah, I I really just don't get the ending that is written for him in X Factor Investigations.
1: He wants him to to get him off to the sunset, and yet it's not a sunset that makes any sense. But continue.
0: But once he's there, the next time he pops up is to die in Death of X, where without explanation, he's back manning all the facilities at Muir Island with his dupes. Because that's just where he is when a writer is like, what should Madrax be doing? Oh, I know, managing a facility with like 20 of them. Mm-hmm. You see it before X-Factor Investigations when he's in Banshee's X-Core. He's yep. like their entire staff. You've seen it more recently. He staffed the Hellfire Gala. Even in the age of Apocalypse, mm-hmm. the Madrai are an army that Apocalypse has driven his power into overdrive. And now there are thousands of him. And they're just foot soldiers in Apocalypse's war who die in droves. There is this way that the characters and the writers alike are happy to allow him to become a fungible source of labor that is endless, both in terms of serving the characters in the story, but also serving the plot needs of the story. It's just interesting. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing yeah. when it happens, but breaking him out of that, mm-hmm. I think, is key. And so I liked yeah. this issue of X-Corp, the spotlight issue, number three, mm-hmm. with beautiful Valentine Delandro art who had previously drawn him and Monet and in X-Factor Investigations, and it was fun to see him on those characters again.
1: Yeah. Well, that's what's so great, is Teenie is actually interested in the implications of... Like of the labor and workplace implications of Jamie Madrox, as well as what it means for him to have this identity as a scientist and as a father. Like I this is this is really a gold mine.
0: And I I it's like time. And I really liked the way that his relationship with Layla was written in that story because the happy ending is implausible. It always mm-hmm. has been. It has never made sense. And so yeah let's dig into how weird their marriage must be because guess what I bet it's really fucking weird yeah she told him that they were going to get married when she was 13 yeah it's then tricked him into taking her with him into the dystopian future Mm -hmm. where she then grew up returned to the past and psychically imprinted her younger self with knowledge of the future including that she was going to marry Jamie Madrox
1: yeah but you do also get that amazing scene of her waiting in the concentration camp in that one spot and for that thing to f- for the fall out of the sky and kill the person, which is fucking amazing. That is fun.
0: Here's the thing about Layla. I like a precog. I like a character who's mysterious. I don't like the romance thing. No, well, I mean, she's a child. It's like disgusting. It's just, it's gross. And I can't get behind it. And I can't get behind it even when she comes back as an adult because to him a month ago, she was 13. She was a kid. Yeah. Here's the thing. It's not like Ilyana's eight. And Kitty is babysitting her. And then a month later, Ilyana is the same age as Kitty, and they're best friends, and there's like a romantic overtone, maybe. It's not the same thing. Here it's Jamie Madrox is, let's say, 30. Mm-hmm. This 13 year old girl is aggressively flirting with him in a way that is supposed to make us uncomfortable and that certainly makes him uncomfortable. And then she gets magic aged up through science fiction and they start fucking. Yeah. That's weird.
1: Mm hmm. It's 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 very uncomfortable, and I I like her, but that's not okay. I mean, it's just like Peter. I, I know you like this character, but that doesn't mean your personal stand-in can go just go and have sex with her. That's not cool, dude.
0: Um, and it's just to me, and like I am so hesitant to cast. You know, it's so cliche at this point, like the Mary Sue aspersion or whatever, and it is a sexist idea. There is something about her as she develops over the course of. Peter David's X-Factor investigations. The reason I don't feel like it's a sexist criticism is because I think this also happens with Madrox to some extent. Mm-hmm. But with her, it's like she learns sorcery from Doctor Doom. She becomes the leader of the future resistance in Bishop's timeline. She suddenly has this resurrection power that was never implied by any before. any yeah. story. She's just a character who it seems like anytime the plot requires something... She's there and can do it. And also a character who just racks up like merit badges, essentially, from all over the Marvel Universe. Like once she's doing like sorcery, I'm like, okay, enough. You know, it just starts to feel like the character's kind of overburdened. And explaining her to anyone who hasn't read that book is almost <laughs> it is just impossible. It's impossible. Yeah, I do enjoy her, but I'm not. I'm not saying you're wrong. I think it's the tone. Yeah, yeah. But to get back to Jamie, what are some other favorite tales of yours?
1: Rereading the X Factor Investigation series has been interesting and challenging for me because, like, I can continue. I continue to see what appealed to me, but now it's not. I don't. F- I mean, you know, it's a combination of like having seen that really ugly racist tirade
0: firsthand yeah first, that would have like, been literally a weird
1: and like from my um experience like with through that and reading the comic now with less of a sense of scarcity for noir comics narratives like there's more to choose from now mm-hmm. it doesn't it's like not I'm not going to tell anybody. Oh, you should go read this. You know, right. like I completely understand what I completely understand why I, I liked it, in both like pretentious and legitimate ways, especially for like stuff when I was a teenager. But um, I'm not going to be like, oh my god, everybody go read this. Jamie is like trying to be like a tough, hard-boiled, cool, cool guy, and like so are a lot of teenagers, right? Like it's, it gives right. you a place, a position you can say that you're being. I'm like, I'm being sardonic. I'm looking at this critically. I'm not gonna let any of this pain really touch me. Um, it gives you an excuse to be able to sort of narrate your life in a certain way without sounding like a crazy person for like narrating it yourself. But mm-hmm. it doesn't, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel necessary to me. Like I could tell people like a lot of things that, that they could read over this now so I really enjoyed the Madrox miniseries that came out you mean the recent one the recent one yes the the the, the Rosenberg yeah. mm-hmm. it really is a comic that understands the ways he's great and the ways he's irritating and makes both of those things very clear and very fun I like Matt Rosenberg's humor and it, it shines there there's a lot of absurdism I, you know I wasn't reading the surrounding x titles at the time per se that it came out and I had no problem you know getting into it so I think that's a good teaser for folks who are interested.
0: Yeah, the thing about it is that it creates this very complicated question about like who the Jamie we're left with at the end of the story is, really. Then, thankfully, it doesn't matter because yeah. he dies in Uncanny and then gets resurrected on Krakoa. Mm-hmm. I've noticed people around the web being like, which Jamie was resurrected on Krakoa? And the answer is... Don't worry. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Like clearly one who is married to Layla and they Mm -hmm. have a child and like otherwise do not overthink this.
1: I mean, I think that there are some formative experiences that I would hope this Jamie had been absor- had absorbed from other things. Like, for example, his experience literally being in a concentration camp in the future, yeah. which he seems like he must have because he has the M tattoo he on his face. He has the tattoo. Like, I think that's an important thing for him. And honestly, if Jamie... Like, to say something positive about him for a change, you know, I think Jamie, if he has a mission statement, it's something which he literally says multiple times in his runs, which is, if mutants don't help mutants, no one else will. And, like, he truly believes that. He thinks that mutants have to stand up for each other. And that's what he's going to do.
0: Yeah, which is why it was odd to me. And I understood the story logic of it. But around, like, the Utopia moment when Scott invites X Factor to come join them on Utopia and Jamie's like... No isolationism like this will never be the answer you know like we have to be out in the world I understand that logically that's because X Factor as a book has to be outside <laughs> of the utopian framework to yes. work to function mm-hmm. but it felt a little bit out of character for me because I think that he is a mutant solidarity guy at the end of the day
1: he is but the thing is i to to call upon the yiddish concept of doit like his argument is that home is where we are and if that's in mutant town then that's because like he, Jamie is correct in asserting that it's not like all of the mutants were going to go and up and go to Utopia.
0: So the right. reality
1: is he's li- he's living... Well, Scott in a wants comi-
0: them to, but... Right, yeah, but that was like, never
1: going to... Right. It was never compelling... It was never a, com- a compelling enough moment for that to truly be a thing that happened. And so since he is in New York, which is the city that is of all the diverse communities where we live, like, with each other, it makes sense for him to be in New York because there will continue to be mutants in New York and, like, we need to protect our people who are here where we are right um so i think you can no price that i you can make an argument for either way
0: you absolutely can it was like the one moment where i was like i'm not quite sure i 100 percent but politically like it just felt a little tiny bit off like the way i rationalize it is mostly he still doesn't trust cyclops over the way that the x-men lied to them about house of am and the decimation yep. so that too i think that that's also it's like i'm not gonna live in scott's
1: of all military people. Military yeah. installation? Because
0: mm-hmm. like, I don't trust yeah. him. And we to so know about That's her. how yeah. you can... Also, like, whatever Rain was up to with Scott clearly fucked her up real bad. X-Force is classified, but, like... The outcome is on her face. Yeah, yeah and in her womb. I mean, like, you know, there's a lot going on that clearly letting her go off to work for Scott was not... Uh, it was not a great case. choice. So I guess that's how you can you can justify that.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I love this moment where he has in Civil War, like you you know, I, yes. where he's debating, should we? Because remember, he's someone who's come from the going, being and working in government teams. And um, he also is perpetually really hates being forced to make a choice because his, mm. one of the things with his power set is he never really has to make a choice. He can just say yes to everything and see what right. the outcomes are. Um, when he does have to eventually make a choice about whether they're going to go and sign up with, the you know, w- where they're going to stand on civil war, he's like, actually, no, we're like not going to go with the government. We are going to be independent and makes a compelling case for why that's The correct thing to do like so he doesn't want to have to have a political position but when he has one he will choose the right one
0: yeah and it's a particularly defiant stance whereas like emma and scott's position when tony comes to them is like we're not getting involved this is like between all of you like this Mm -hmm. is your flat scan superhero problem like we've got our own shit going on they sort of opt out of the civil war jamie by contrast is like we're not registering And puts out a statement in the paper. Yeah. You know, like X-Factor is opposed, come to Mutant Town, we will protect you. And puts himself on the line. You know, it's an interesting story for all of the characters, but particularly for Monet, because Monet doesn't have a secret identity. Mm -hmm. And so there's no reason she couldn't register. But she decides to stand in solidarity with the team against it, which is a character beat for her. One thing that really struck me rereading all this because I was doing a Monet episode was why I started rereading. And then, you know, it ended up being relevant for Shatterstar. And like, I've Mm -hmm. had to read a lot of X Factor investigations back over the last month and (laughs) change. What really struck me, and I think that this is the reason I find it hard to recommend it to people. Like, so there's a couple things. One is like, as someone who did like Peter David as a writer on especially that 90s material, I was very, very disappointed by the panel that you reported on, obviously. yeah, like That was a real bummer for me. I wasn't like a gigantic fan, but I was bummed out. That was a writer who I liked and bummed me out. So that's one reason why, you know, much like, I mean, listen, I love Warren Ellis' Hellstorm. Am I going to tell people, I love Next Wave. Am I going to tell people mm. like, you have to go read these books? Not without the caveat of like, it's up to how you feel because this guy behaved badly in X, Y, Z ways. Here's a website. Go check it out and see what you think, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and that's how I feel about Peter David is like, I have trouble recommending it because I'm like, you have to be aware of the fact that he made a really racist rant in public. As a Jewish person, how do you not understand
1: how How this is literally the blood libel
0: from Romani people? How can you be a Jew and not understand that you're... Propagating a blood libel against the same group of people that was by your side in not the mutant camps with the M tattoo, Peter, the actual real life. The actual real Holocaust. Yes. So, like, get your fucking shit together. It's astonishing. I try not to get negative on this podcast too much because I want this to be a positive space, but I was so disappointed by that. He's shown no remorse for his behavior and that is even more disappointing it is it's a political
1: opinion that he has and is like very wedded to this isn't like an accidental slip-up where somebody said something racist they didn't understand it was racist and they're like oh uh, i guess i didn't really mean it that way no no this is his political opinion
0: disappointing so there's that there's that let's stop talking about that i guess because there's not really much else to say at this point yeah But then there's the fact of I do think that the book is sexist and how it treats the female characters. So I'm hesitant sometimes to recommend it based on that. In the same way that while Angel is still to this day like my comfort show that I watch all the time, when I recommend it, it is with pretty strong caveats about how the last two seasons of that show Mm. handle its female characters. Yeah. Yeah. After David Greenwalt leaves and Whedon gets more control. Just putting it out there, just a thought. Noted. Noted. That's just a theory. So I have trouble with that. But I actually think the biggest reason that it doesn't read well, rereading it now, at least mm-hmm. to me, is that the villains are terrible. <laughs> like there like is the not characters. a compelling one among them. Damien Tripp mm-hmm. is nothing. Like there's yeah. nothing effective about that character. Josef Huber, that like one-off guy nothing. Cortex. Okay. Evil Jamie, not as compelling as the evil Jamie from Legacy Virus Times. No, that's very true. You know, and it all just sort of comes down to Damien Tripp again and again. I just don't. Care about Daniel and it's true.
1: weird because like dude like you know Peter
0: invented rocks on like which is my favorite evil corporation he's good at bad guys usually that's why it's so weird and yeah, then it, it pivots weird. to hell which again like which just don't not, give a fuck about hell yeah well it's like and again if you at least tied it really into X Men lore if they were dealing with, with Blasco, like limbo or something yeah totally you know it be such, but like why is X Factor fighting Mephisto There's so many comics
1: that I love that have gotten derailed by hell storylines not just in this but like in dc even like people stop stop yeah well he i mean like i said i don't mean him. See- i actually haven't read any of his dc stuff because the art is so ugly that i could never make myself
0: even look at young justice or supergirl just oh. ugly 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 i think some of the young justice art is nice but it's not to my taste it's like i have this problem with a couple different artists, Bocciolo, for instance, who I think is really an artist, but it's for
1: the kids. Like it's it's not, not, it's just not my
0: aesthetic. Aesthetic. Yep. 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 Joe Mad's not my aesthetic. Humberto Ramos is not my aesthetic. There are just certain, and it is sort of that, we're kind of doing a manga influenced style mm-hmm. a little bit, but like it's not really a manga style. It's yeah. Sort of like aesthetic. Look, and listen, yeah. I get why people like those artists. It's just not my aesthetic. That's all. Yeah. Because um, our
1: taste and comics art were solidified before the manga influence became dominant correct. in the genre.
0: So f- for me, like Mark Silvestri, John mm-hmm. Byrne, Dave Cockrum, Walt Simonson yeah that is a comic Mm -hmm. book art to me and even Jim Lee though that wasn't to my taste either I think that my thing with Jim Lee on the X-Men was that it felt less kinetic it felt like which is funny because it was so action-packed but it sort of felt more like characters posing Yeah, totally. As opposed to, if you look at Sylvester in the Outback, Sylvester Through the Siege, Perilous, Inferno, all of that stuff, the characters really feel like they're moving in space and interacting with each other physically in a way that the Jim Lee stuff didn't quite hit for me. It felt more like, here we are, we're doing a pose. Yeah. I feel like X-Factor Investigations, what it has to recommend it is like this vibe that it created at the time. But now if you want that, there's, There's so many so other many things, other books exactly. You could
1: read. There's just like read Jessica Jones, read any of the Daredevil stuff from that period, which is like still. I mean, I love Daredevil. Like honestly,
0: you know. just read Hellblazer. Yeah, or read Hellblazer, especially if you want like that. Honestly, so this is my like other theory is that the reason the book pivots so hard to hell in the back third is that oh, he just starts writing a John reading. Constantine <laughs> book with Madrox.
1: Dude, yes. I believe her theory. I subscribe to it now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: and I get it. I would love to write a John Constantine story. By the way, British listeners, I am aware that it's pronounced John Constantine. No one in America says that, and you just have to deal with it because I will never remember unless. I think about it. <laughs> there's a panel even where someone's like John Constantine, and he's like, "It's Constantine," and I'm like, "I can't. I'm sorry." Can't. It's amazing, um, but yeah, yeah. Like, there's so many authors. Gotham Central, yeah. Read Gotham Central, or read. Fifty-two. Renee's story in fifty-two. Fifty-two is so fucking. Fifty-two, 52 is so fucking good.
1: Until X of Swords, fifty-two was the last great crossover. I agree. If comics, I agree. It just was. Um, but you know, another thing I'd recommend for folks who want something hard-boiled is the the series November from Elsa Chartier and Matt Fraction that's coming out right now series of graphic novels elsa and matt were on my podcast to talk about it this winter was it spring i don't know not that long ago and um that's a really excellent hard-boiled comic that's like centered in the characters were usually peripheral to the hard-boiled noir Mm -hmm. detective story it's really great like there's
0: so many wonderful things to choose from so there's less scarcity exactly and so like It really just does come down to there was nothing else like it at the time. And I think that it has aged poorly. And that's a bummer because, you know, all comics age, right? Like I am always telling people to go back and read the 80s into early 90s run of Excalibur. Is it perfect? No, but I think it's held up. Yeah. This is a book that I just was really taken aback when I reread by how much I didn't feel like it had held up. And now I will say it's very possible that I wasn't inclined to be charitable towards it because I'm so because disappointed in Peter yeah. David.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, my whole thing is I'm a big Jack Kirby person and there's tons of stuff that have been made in comics, including the ones that he actually like scripted yeah. um, where you're like a little like, Ooh! but the intent is always clear. Yes. is the thing. Mm-hmm. Like,
0: that's how I feel about Claremont too. I mean, exactly. Claremont exactly. is always trying to do. It's something always making good. an effort. Yeah, yeah like- it's not always gonna hit, but. Black Viking should be called Viking, not Black Viking.
1: But I know what you were going for there, big right. guy. I exactly. get it. Like, right. It's yeah. Not, yeah. It's
0: not great that all of the new mutants called Danny Moonstar chief all the time. On the other hand, I get that you were doing Trying something- Trying to be affectionate with it and making a- Yeah. And you made a Native American- American woman, character. The leader like on, of the, leader the team of the group. Yeah, that they exactly. all respect. So mm-hmm. it's like just one of those tricky things where you're like, unfortunately, yeah. it's 1983. And like a white man wrote
1: Meanwhile- this. When I'm like rereading my, I'm rereading The the X Factor and seeing all the jokes and references about GCs, which was the word they were using for genetically challenged, which was essentially a parody of paralytically correct yeah. terminology, which was like, that was like the catchphrase right then in the early 90s. It was yeah. like, what's politically correct? And it was terminology right. that was used to make fun of people who were saying why don't we try to not say racist shit all the time. Right. Oh, you're trying to be politically correct. Like if you guys don't remember, politically correct never had a positive connotation. It was always no. a way to make fun of people who don't want to
0: say shit that's racist basically. Well, no, it's why Bill Maher's show Ugh. was called yeah. politically incorrect. Yeah. The premise of political correctness is that it's not actually correct, it's just politics. Like you're it's being just politically poli- yeah. expedient, you're pretending that you care about this stuff when you don't. And I think that with mutants, the way to look at it really is the disability politic Mm -hmm. angle because, you know, I was just watching season one of Mob Wives, which is 11 years old now, because (laughs) my friends, Laura Murchene Halls and Carrie O'Donnell, are recapping it on their podcast, Sexy Unique Podcast, which is about reality shows. There was this exchange where, like, two of the wives were chatting and one of them was like, I just think you need to settle it because, like, frankly, this whole thing is just... And then she says the R word. Mm -hmm. It goes without comment in the scene. And I was so struck by it because so much effort was put over the decades since into really impressing upon people how harmful it is to throw that word around. (laughs) To just mean that something is, like, stupid or annoying. So when you look at this sequence of stuff this this kind of stuff where it's like oh like genetically challenged or whatever that is specifically mocking the kind of people who were saying please stop saying the r-word like that's exactly. What that exactly exactly and that feels mean it feels it's too. gross yeah. and i guess my question
1: is like does any is 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 saying gc is that only a thing from peter david or did yes. any of the other writers i that's don't remember I it, it from anything else. like him it sounds like his humor yeah and i was
0: i was pretty sure that was just there yeah and so yeah it's possible i'm being uncharitable because he really did disappoint me and i yep. you're not wrong but the thing is like you know It can't just be that because that's not the experience I have of reading Warren Ellis, who was a much more important writer to me. Mm. When I go back and read that now, I'm just like, God, I'm disappointed. Like just, you know, but I don't... right. I don't feel the same, like, and I hate the work. You know what
1: I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, I, yeah. I
0: think it's something else, too. I think it's that, like, I'm older now. Yeah. And I recognize a lot of things in it that don't sit right with me. Oh, well, things
1: that seem very smart and intellectual to you as a smart and intellectual child. Yeah. Are not necessarily going to be the things that feel particularly smart and intellectual to you as an adult.
0: Right. Because I'm 17 when this book comes out. And I was like, ooh, it's like a serious X-Men book. There's yeah lots of drama it is very soapy which is one thing i always appreciate which i always it. love i'm a Claremont that's what head. i want i love a exactly. soap opera in my comics. and there wasn't enough soapy stuff happening in no. them at the time no because the decimation was so dire there was no time for anyone to like date or whatever
1: but also like the writers the other writers that didn't care about that quote-unquote girly stuff right they were like you care about dating and i'm like yes um so that was it we don't have that scarcity anymore we don't have to settle for it anymore
0: no And that is really, I think, the bottom line is that it is a book that I feel like, in retrospect, we settled for. Because it was like nothing we'd ever seen. And I just think it is very much... A product of its time that has not aged particularly well. Cosine. What other stories are favorites of yours before we get into the listener questions? I will say one thing I like is I mentioned it briefly before, but I like at the very beginning of the 90s X Factor when the dupe from Fallen Angels claims to be the real Jamie and like interrupts their first big press conference. Press conference, and Yeah. It's fun. It then becomes that dupe and Jamie Prime arguing over who is the real Jamie and no one can figure it out and all of his friends aren't sure and that's a real blow to his ego. Like Moira yeah. vouches yeah. for the other one yeah. because the other one remembers the Fallen Angels adventure and Moira's like, oh, I was there for that. So that happened. Mm-hmm. You know, like you must be the real Jamie.
1: And Larry Stroman's art on that is so good. It's uh, so good. So stylish. So good. And like, It's very 80s, which it's no longer at the time it's
0: being written, but like, it is very 80s in a way that still still looks fashionable anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That one I really love. Are there any others that you're like super fond of before we jump into the questions? No, we got them all. Good. Good. I'm glad we got them all. I always like when we get them all. Mm -hmm. again i agree with you like i just didn't get into the weeds on it because it is so fucking confusing if you're not like looking at the comic in front of you but i agree that that rosenberg mini was fun
1: i like seeing jamie try to dad in ways that aren't fucked up and i enjoy them using him in the most absurdist ways possible like Mm -hmm. it makes sense for him to be used that way
0: yeah so well in that case let's get into the listener questions because we got A whole bunch. One might Mm -hmm. think that the questions were slapping themselves to produce duplicates and create more questions because uh, it's a lot. So let's just dive right in. Akira King writes, Hello, Connor and Alana. Currently writing this email as I listen to the Sync episode, as I'm also at work. Priorities, right? Anyway, Mm -hmm. I've read the full multiple man dossier. So, my question about Madrox is this Is it ever explained how in depth the different dupes have their own personalities? I know one had that horrible story with Siren, and isn't one of them gay? Is it a hive mind, but they also have their own consciousnesses? And if they're more or less different people, what happens when they get reabsorbed? Do the same dupes come out and remember the last time they were out? Thanks in advance, Excelsior, Akira. P.S. Jamie definitely has sex with his dupes right right yes 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 he absolutely does so this is something that really varies by writer Mm -hmm. i would say that under peter david who is the person who has written this character most frequently and most extensively the vibe you get is that he does get sort of psychosomatic feedback from the dupes but it's like not a hive mind in the sense of like reading each other's thoughts right So like he can feel what they feel, and if one of them gets hurt or killed, it hurts him, sort of like in his mind. So when they're reabsorbed, are they erased? No, but sometimes yes, but it's unclear. We have seen examples where the same dupe comes back, because in early X-Factor investigations, there's this one sort of sociopath rogue dupe that's a problem— and he pops out a couple times and but that's specific to him though generally speaking like if you want to
1: call out he can't call out a specific dupe of himself to be like oh this is this one that i want
0: you to have that's the
1: that's the challenge only the
0: one that was like a rogue element that was causing trouble in the hive essentially was able to sort of assert himself that many times is my recollection Uh he can't just say okay i need that one jamie that was an agent of shield and like pop him out that's not how it works right but i feel like if he smacked himself 50 times that one might eventually pop out yes it's not super clear again a lot of the time it has to do with who's writing and what the needs of the story are Orlante Duncan writes, hello, Connor and Alana, Stan of the pod. This is my third time writing in a question, so I understand if my question is put aside. Don't worry, you're doing great. My question has to do with Jamie's mutation in relation to the Walt Whitman quote. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am vast. I contain multitudes. I've only read Fallen Angels and just finished the Peter David 90s X Factor run. And I'm fascinated with Jamie's dupes developing autonomy outside of being a standard dupe. Could you and your guests talk more on what it may say about Jamie's psychology or personality to be put in situations in which he's literally sometimes at odds with himself or how his dupes can become unrecognizable to Madrox Prime? To be full of so many potential versions of yourself that could manifest outside of you really is a well for stories. And I find myself preoccupied with how an infinite number of selves could complicate one's sense of identity or mythology.
1: Yes, and I love that you mentioned that specific poem because that is actually one of the ones I had in mind a lot when I was like talking and and thinking about this as a teenager actually. I think that for anyone who is sort of tried to has had like a complex life and has tried to reconcile the different selves and lives that they've lived into a coherent being and like struggled to be able to articulate what that is. It's a very relatable experience. The older you are and the more selves you've lived, I think it it's something that makes sense in in real life in some of those ways.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's literalizing the identity crisis that a lot of us have, especially as we grow older and X-Factor Investigations as a book. I mean, if you look at the cast that's assembled, Richter, Monet, Siren, Wolfsbane, not as much strong guy because he's a little older than the others, but mm-hmm. these are all characters who were introduced as students of the X-Men yeah. and become adults. I mean, this is also why I sort of compared to Angel as the spin-off of Buffy, because Angel is the show about being in your 20s. Buffy was a show about being in high school. Mm -hmm. And while Buffy, as a show, had some growing pains once they left high school that a lot of people have commented on, by starting with this is a story about adults, you tell something different. You tell a different story. And so I think all of these characters are facing identity crises in different ways. And Jamie is a very literal way of saying, like, I'm a grown man now. What does that mean? Who am I? I think it also if we want to take it all the way back to the way he grew up he only had himself for company after his parents were killed it makes sense that he would sort of fragment his personality somewhat so that he had interesting people to talk to you know Mm -hmm. yeah because otherwise what's the point if you're just agreeing with yourself all day long. Hmm. So I don't know if that was a conscious thing he did. It doesn't seem like it was, but it makes sense as sort of a response to his traumatic upbringing, I would say. Yeah. By the way, we haven't mentioned, but pretty early in X-Factor Investigations, Peter David retcons that Damien Tripp killed Jamie's parents and made it look like the tornado got them, which is, I think, unnecessary <laughs> because hmm. I think that the random chance of it is what makes it so senseless and what makes his backstory so distressing and sad is that like he had these parents who gave up everything to protect their child who was going to be seen as a freak or a scientific curiosity and they kept him safe and isolated and then an act of god or nature killed them i think that that is more interesting than a time-traveling weirdo killed them because he wanted to manipulate Jamie I'd be more interested if the Damien trip plot ever really went anywhere that I thought was any good yeah yeah, you know Ian Hernandez writes hello Connor and Alana first of all Connor thank you for putting this podcast together I'm a devoted fan my wife friends and local comic store owner think I've gone a bit nutty with my cerebro evangelism but whatever it's been a long hmm. pandemic and it's such a great highlight in an otherwise difficult time well thank you that's very sweet and uh you're welcome I guess I, <laughs> I love doing this show my question is How would you choose to handle the Jamie and Layla relationship going forward? Should it be retconned to be less creepy? Is there even a way to do that? Should they just move forward with it as an occasional plot point and just never bring up the earlier weirdness? Should they find a way to shoot her back into the future so we can see more of the summer's rebellion? Would love to hear both of your thoughts on this. Thanks and take care, Ian Hernandez. Mm. What are your thoughts? Because you do like Layla.
1: Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, I think in some ways, like, it's not fixable
0: yeah i don't think you can fix it
1: like unless you're gonna say no there's literally no way to fix it sorry like it
0: can't so it was
1: interesting for me to see that they did choose to have layla show up in the comic which means we have to acknowledge that jamie is married to someone who he knew when she was a child which is gross because i wasn't sure if if they were just gonna like sort of hand wave to like literally have her not exist in this
0: but and again like not just knew when she was a child but like engaged in prolonged social interaction with when she was a child was her boss was her boss and was flirted with by her in inappropriate ways when she was a child and then literally a month went by she came back 10 to 15 years older and they any comments about her boobs basically yeah and they start hooking up it's really bad So, yeah, I don't know how you I don't know if it's fixable and I don't know how you fix it. I honestly, to me, it's like a Hank and Jan problem.
2: Mm. Like Mm.
0: and that one is even I honestly feel like that's almost unfair because it's that one panel right from back when and if you read the story like. Hank is, this is Hank Pym for people who are not Avengers people and Janet Van Dyne, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Hank is like all hopped up on Pym particles and isn't in his (laughs) right mind to begin with. And the artist allegedly drew it as a more violent slap than was intended from the script. But the way it morphed over time was like, this is the guy who beat his wife that one time. Mm-hmm. And so any effort to make those characters like functionally happily together again always just felt shouldn't. weird. Yeah. yeah. So what I liked about the X-Corp issue was that it established that the happy ending at the end of X-Factor Investigations was weird, which we all knew it was. And it established that their relationship is not great. And I think that, quite honestly the way you deal with this in my opinion is you have her get a divorce and move on with her life and we don't see her anymore well except but they have a kid then you can bring her in occasionally for like that kind of like this is my ex-wife we have a child together we're co-parents but i don't want to see them i don't want to see them snuggling i just don't it it it, it skeeves me out i mean it would have been the easier thing would just be pretend that
1: like that relationship didn't happen so I was surprised to see her
0: well this is always my thing with Krakoa is I'm like because it's a soft reboot there are so many things you could choose not to worry about and instead Mm -hmm. and this is just it's just two approaches right like I would have just said where's Layla who cares who knows like maybe the timeline got erased and she's gone or whatever Mm -hmm. similarly I would never have bothered to explain why Siren isn't the Morgan anymore I would have just been like, here she is. I'm with you. Don't worry about it. I'm with you. Instead, Leah Williams did a whole arc about it that in the long run, I do think will probably be more beneficial to Teresa than just ignoring it. But personally, I would have just ignored it. Or, you know, Vida Ayala is really digging into all of the shit that Peter David did to Rain. Yeah, which in if you look at Hickman's initial arc, the Hickman Rice arc at the beginning of New Mutants on Krakoa, they basically open with rain being resurrected and everybody being like, it's a fresh start. And like, let's not think about the last 30 years of publication of this character. But there is something to be said, like, that's something you can do in comic books, but especially with a book like this that went on for so many issues it's hard to just say it didn't happen. So I feel like, you know, while it isn't necessarily what I would have done, it makes sense to me that these writers, and it's notable that the writers we're talking about in all three of those cases are under 40, let's say, and either women or non-binary, like non-men. There is this idea of the emotional horrors that have been wrought on these female characters by a male writer let's unpack them and i get that the age thing i mentioned because these are all people like you and me for whom x-factor investigations came out when we were children or teenagers it was a book that people really did like so i get the appeal of trying to fix the places it went wrong. I think Layla is one where it's just kind of impossible. And that's why I thought that the way she was using X-Corp was smart. It was like, what we're conveying here is that Madrox is awkward as a husband and father. Yeah.
1: And I to think, I like the, I like, I like him being a dad in this. I think that is important and interesting to do. I just wish it wasn't with a character who he had known as a child and then married. So, hooray for telling stories about Madrox as a dad, but boo for everything happening (laughs)
0: with Layla. Yeah, I mean, there's just not much you can do to salvage that, unfortunately. Mike Chu writes... What is Jamie Madrox's gay dupe up to? Did he start in OnlyFans? Is he constantly being accused of catfishing on Grindr? Was he on the party boat that sank off the coast of Puerto Vallarta? I guess what I'm asking is, will this aspect of Jamie's sexuality ever be addressed again, or was it basically just a one-off joke? P.S. Can we all agree that Eric Dane was an extremely hot Jamie Madrox and that not having more of him is one of the graver injustices in X-Men The Last Stand? That's absolutely true, and there are many injustices to catalog, but that is, that is <laughs> one of them. I think a lot of this comes down to and I know that like I say this every week, but like a lot of how queer big two comics get to be is not necessarily up to writers on those comics because these are corporate held IPs that a lot of suits whose names we will never know make decisions about, right? Yeah. Multiple man, though, is not, I would say, a character with like a ton of like brand cachet. Interestingly, they
1: did have a multiple-man costume T-shirt that came out during the time of FX Factor Investigations. And it shocked me that one could purchase multiple-man merch. Yeah, that's
0: wild, honestly. Isn't
1: that crazy? But yeah, exactly. He's not a brand name. Like, you think they could get away with it if they wanted to because he's not on children's lunch pails.
0: What I would say is, like, the thing about him is... He is in a monogamous relationship with Layla and if his dupes were out fucking other people I think that that would be a problem in their marriage so I don't think he's a character we're going to see exploring his sexuality very much generally unless that marriage ends. Yeah,
1: or unless they make it a whole thing
0: about how he is doing this. Yeah, and like the, if it becomes a point of tension in the relationship or maybe they have an understanding or who knows. Yeah. It's something you'd have to dig into. I just realized the other thing that like gets my goat about the whole Layla thing is that it feels very pointedly like another way of shitting on Teresa. Mhm. You know, when you go back, it's interesting to think about it. David goes out of his way to do that retcon saying that the Jamie Teresa fell in love with in Fallen Angels isn't the real Jamie. It's this repeated beat where it's like Terry's feelings are completely invalidated or like she's not the right girl for him in these Peter David stories. And I don't know what it is about, really. And I'm not like a siren stan by any means, but at a certain point, it just does feel like, enough already. Hmm. And so Layla showing up while Jamie and Terry are still together and being, like, I'm his destined wife is, like, a weird... So much of it is so weird.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: One thing I will say, though, about queer dupe reemerging though, is that, remember,
1: like, Peter David is the writer who has Jamie's, like, dupes that are queer yeah. popping up and sharing their opinions... And that he was doing that prior to him even being able to have Shadowstar and Richter mm-hmm. as a couple be on the page. And Peter David is a straight man. And so yes. now that there is queer people writing the comic, they might not be allowed to do it, whereas Peter David was allowed. Well, and it's one thing for it to yeah. be treated as a joke, and it's another thing for should to be treated as a thing that's serious. Thank you, by the way, for having my question go on the, uh, the Richter episode. Oh, yeah. I appreciate you writing in. This kind of connects back to it, I think, in some ways.
0: If you haven't listened to the Richter episode, Alana wrote in to ask how we felt about the fact that it's always straight men who get to do this. And that's not always true anymore. But historically, these big milestone moments, it's cishet white guys with clout in the industry Mm -hmm. who get to push that through. I'm hopeful that that will change. I mean, I think that what just happened with Tim Drake in DC is really delightful. Mm-hmm. And I hope that we see more of that in X soon. Mm-hmm. It has not escaped my notice that the only character to come out as queer recently in the line is Loa in a book that Cy Spurrier wrote. And I love Cy, and I think is great, and I'm happy to have Loa be bi, and that's mm-hmm. cool. Like, I'm into it. But... Apart from that, it's only been new characters. Like Vita Ayala yeah. has been able to introduce some new characters, thankfully, who are queer and trans. But I do think that you need established characters. Yes or it doesn't have the same... Same gravitas. Yeah, to the general fan base. And it makes you know? us feel
1: seen. Like, that was the thing that was important with it being specifically Richter and Shatterstar, was that it was like saying, yes, you're not fucking crazy. You're not crazy for reading it this shit. way for
0: the last 15 yeah. years.
1: Right. And I, I, I prefer that to them having characters who no one had queer headcanons of being queer. But, got, you know, go with God. Like Alan Scott, I guess, is the person I'm thinking. Well, Tom. sure, that was like,
0: just bizarre, but it's fine. It's like, you know there's what? so many of really it's
1: alan scott not well
0: because alan scott doesn't fucking matter exactly not to be rude but he doesn't because we didn't ask for it it's almost like we're gonna give you the gay you didn't ask right and also because the new 52 had gotten rid of his gay son so it was like we owe them one yeah i guess we owe them a gay alan scott family member so it'll just be alan himself listen whatever i'm glad that in the timeline restored and everything he and the son are both gay and it's like a late in life coming out thing that's cool that is cool cool. storyline to do that feels like repair work whereas i think that the initial thing was very shooting from the hip and not really it's like
1: so it's not grayson who everyone thinks is queer it's going to be a random guy got it
0: Yeah. And it's like every newspaper was like Green Lantern comes out as gay. And I'm like, it's not Green Lantern. It's not Hal Jordan. It's not Kyle Rayner. It's not even Jon Stewart, the one who they never. Who who everyone actually cares about. Because everyone who is a millennial watched that cartoon. Mm -hmm. It's none of those three. It's not even Guy Gardner. No, It's, (laughs) it's not. This guy who's the golden, he's not even part of the Green Lantern Corps. No, it's so stupid. I'm sorry. This is not a DC Mm -hmm. podcast, but you know what? It's fine. And guess what? He's kind of hot. So um, I'll take it. But like, (laughs) it's just, this is the thing. What we need is for the queer people writing these stories to be allowed to have important characters just be queer. And I am hopeful that we are going to get more and more of that as time marches on. But I understand that it's frustrating right now. Yeah. Inner Dialogue writes Hello Connor, longtime listener, second time questioner, anybody who's died more times than Gene Gray certainly deserves a conversation. Jamie Maddox has long been a source of free labor for various endeavors throughout his publication history to both comedic and horrific effect.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You can't understate Mirror Island blanketed with piles of dupe corpses after Mpox. Even before a society where the youth of Krakoa can treat their bodies as disposable, Jamie has himself been seen as disposable by his friends and peers. Monet was just very dismissive of the death of his dupes in the Savage Land facility, for example. Is Jaime the most exploited mutant in mutant history? Is it problematic to investigate the abuse of Krakoan resurrection protocols for kicks while turning around to demand a singular mutant give himself up as cannon fodder for the mutant machine? If Jamie won't advocate for himself, who will? What does it say about a minority that fights oppression and exploitation without, only to exploit their own within? Thanks for the podcast casting community that has risen from it inner dialogue i thought that was yes yes and i mean it's it's the stuff you like to talk about
1: so yeah i mean this is completely it's completely true i I think that the um implications of how he's treated are incredibly important for the story to look at i'm really excited that x-corp seems to want to actually do that and call how horrific it is because it's been Yes, I agree with everything that this questioner has asked. And I do think that we're actually going to get a look at it. We're beginning to get a look at it now, take treat it in a serious way through X ex corporation. Um, because the people, the dupes he creates that, you know, there, if there's ones that want to come back willingly and there's ones that don't, and you have to respect the individuality and the choices of those ones that are, and those are people and people are not disposable, although they're treated that way under capitalism. And so, what is done with this character in that way makes perfect sense for how the world works and operates and should be used to critique the system that people are forced to operate in and treat bodies as commodities.
0: Yeah, and I think that the point, at least as I take it, of X Corp is Monet and Warren are minority capitalists, like Emma. They have a specific politic that they think is the best way to advance their minority group. When you are a minority capitalist, you are going to have to make compromises with the capitalist system in ways that are not always going to be kosher, let's say.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think that it becomes important to show the cost of that because if Krakoa has eliminated scarcity and XCorp is a corporation unfettered by the need to artificially create scarcity then there needs to be some other cost of operation or the allegory is lost right like you can't have it be a perfect unproblematic corporation because then what are we talking about you know in terms of the real world so i think that the way that monet is dismissive about losing those dupes because it's like well we can make more and they're not real people they're his dupes i don't actually think that that's as callous as like given their experiences in x-factor investigations where he did treat the dupes that way a lot of the time as sort of like suicide mission operatives on occasion I can see how she would get that idea. Like, Monet never visited Reverend John Maddox. Mm-hmm. Monet didn't meet that detective Madrox who committed suicide by in Detroit yeah. in front of Jamie. Like, those moments are things that Madrox experiences with his dupes sort of one-on-one. And they're not something Monet's ever witnessed, really, that I can recall. The only ones she's seen that were really individuated were the evil ones. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's not going to necessarily make you go, yes, dupe rights, you know. Um, but it's just like how Mastermind and Selene are securing positions on the board. And those are two of the most dreadful evil villains that yeah. the X-Men ever ever faced. And the point is, like, all right, if we want to have this corporate entity, we're going to need the best corporate minds. And those tend to be predatory people.
1: Which is interesting because I just don't know that that is actually true, but it all makes sense within the story, like, that the characters would think
0: that. Well, it's what Monet and Warren think, Monet in particular, because she is the kind of person who thinks that it's about you know, striking first. Yep. She's ruthless in that way. And Warren has always had, ever since the 80s, that sort of darker nature inside him that makes him want to strike first and cut people's heads off. So
2: mm-hmm.
0: it makes sense that they're like, all right, you know, keep your enemies closer. And I think Madrox is someone who is positioned to question. I think Madrox and Trinary in that book are there to question the positions of Monet and Warren. Yeah. I'm interested to see where it goes. I think that the first three issues have been interesting and that the Madrox spotlight was very interesting. We'll see what happens next.
1: Yeah. But I'm really glad to hear other fans are thinking about this stuff. It's like important.
0: I think it's a question you're very pointedly asked to ask. hmm Absolutely. Andrew Kosick writes outside of the one agent of shield dupe, letting all of shield know about Madrox's I'm going to have dupes to live every life plan. How much of the wider Marvel universe knows about this idea. If you cover up his face tattoo and give him any shirt, that's not his green Jack Kirby one. He's a pretty generic looking dude. Do any of the other Marvel organizations like aim or Hydra or hammer have make sure you don't recruit multiple man campaigns. (laughs) Does Val Cooper ever need to make sure there isn't a dupe trying to get into local politics in like Topeka. Is Random Madrox just rambling into your bureaucracy a normal fact of life in Marvel comics? This is a funny question. Also, like, yes. Because if you recall, during Messiah Complex, Jamie infiltrates the Purifiers at one point. This is a thing he does. And you'd think at a certain point that there would be, like, a picture of him in every evil base. Yeah. Like don't let in this guy. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, exactly. No, I, I'm sure he's had has people out and like there's probably some who sell Amway. You know, like there's the, there is the there's there's no reason he can't go and, and be anywhere. And um him being sort of blandly handsome is part of his ability to do that too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Which leads to a question from Sterling K. Johnson who asks, long time first time, is Jamie hot? <laughs> Uh, That's a great question, though. Like, is he? It's sometimes I'm like, yes. And other times I'm just like, what an asshole. Like, is he hot? I think he is. Well,
1: here's this. Th- okay. So there's two different ways to answer this. One is anybody is hot, depending who's drawing them. And there's certain people who, no matter, there's certain artists who, like, they're just, they, the way they draw people is never going to be hot to me. So sure, aside yeah. from that question of the artist, you have then the thing of the I can tell you that young teenage me thought so. Adult me is like, yeah, but he's such a scum. Like, yeah, know. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm like, yeah, but. So on the other, and then on the third hand, he's got the powers. Yeah. Which inherently are hot. So. Yeah.
0: So there's that. You have to have three hands to handle this. I think part of it is that, the fact that all of the women in X-Factor Investigations are so attracted to him does make you, like, go okay and, like, roll your eyes at a certain point. So that complicates, like, my gut reaction to the question Mm. because I don't feel like he's hot enough for For the way that all of the women react (laughs) throughout the entire book. However, Uh. yes, I do think Jamie's hot.
1: But, you know, he just has to not have that full-body cowl suit is the thing. That's just not... You know, like a head sock, yes, but like the
0: full cover. The full body condom is a little too much No, for me. no, you got about the hair fly free, you know. <laughs> Zach Wilson writes, Hey Connor and Alana, welcome to Cerebro, Alana. Hope you're having fun. So let's just get right to it. The butterfly shaped elephant in the room, Layla Miller. I was someone who adored kid Layla after House of M when I was reading sporadically in high school even after she came back from Messiah Complex. But the marriage and relationship, well, I wasn't a fan. And he goes on to some things we've already talked about. But this I did want to read. Do you think Moira's going to kill Layla if she realizes what Layla knows? She's not technically a precog, but knowing stuff is close enough.
1: So now that we've determined that that's not actually her superpower, I don't think Moira needs to kill her.
0: Correct. And also it was established toward the end of X-Factor Investigations that by resurrecting Guido who she knew was supposed to die there, Layla just couldn't resist and upset the timeline. So the timeline that Layla experienced that was Bishop's timeline that gave her all her knowledge of the future has been averted and is no longer relevant. So while she still knows things vaguely, there's a bit after that where like the hell on earth war starts in Manhattan and Jamie's like, did you know there was gonna be a volcano in Manhattan? Today? And she goes, uh, I knew there was going to be a volcano in Manhattan in about six months. So I didn't want to worry you until it was a more imminent problem, but it <laughs> seems like now it's happening now. So I, that's such a great bit though. It's I a mean, good bit. And I'm saying yeah. like by the end of X factor investigations, the implication is because she decided that she was tired of living this predestined life and made a few changes now her knowledge becomes less and less and less relevant as time goes on. And mm-hmm. by the time of Krakoa, she probably doesn't really know stuff anymore. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, it was the cool thing about the character, but that ship sailed a long time ago, you know? Yep. So, yeah, I think she's like Taro in that while she has some vague knowledge of the future, it's not her power and, like, in the same way that Taro has to interpret the cards so she can't... Like, the problem that Moira has, I mean, apart from their personal issues, the problem that Moira has with Destiny and, by extension, with Blindfold is that they see all the potential timelines simultaneously. So there's no way for whatever Moira's up to to escape Destiny's notice. Whereas Layla only knows about one specific timeline that is now no longer the track we're on And Marie-Ange Tarot, like, has to decide what it means that, like, the page of cups is reversed. Right. You know, it's not, it's not like visions. So I think that's why certain characters who, like, you might consider a precog are allowed to just sort of vibe. I actually think the bigger problem that Layla represents for Krakoa is if she ever uses her mutant power, because that is a huge mess for the resurrection protocols. That could be an interesting story, I think. Yeah. I still think it's wild that the way that we learn about this power is that she does it to Trevor Fitzroy. Of all people. In the future. Yeah. And that's why Trevor Fitzroy is evil. By the way, I fucking hate that. Mmm. Because it takes all agency away from that character who was a really, you know, like, not that the upstarts were ever the most incredible villains ever, but, like, Trevor Fitzroy killing all of the Hellions because it's fun is a really effective beat in the early 90s. And just to be like, oh, he's a sociopath because Layla booped him back to life that one time is, like, that sucks to me, personally. Mm. And undermines Bishop's... I mean, so many things around this era of comics undermined Bishop. (laughs) Yeah. But Fitzroy is Bishop's, like, arch nemesis. And the whole thing, to just have it be like, oh, Layla, like, flipped the switch on the back of the Krusty doll, and now he's evil. It's like a little, (laughs) it's a little much. Uh, Yeah. Jack S. writes Hi Connor and Alana Huge fan of the podcast The way you and your guests Talk about the accent How so you communicate to others Why they're so important to me I'm super excited That you're covering My favorite character Uh oh I hope you're enjoying This Sorry. episode Do we know if the Jamie resurrected on Krakoa is the original Madrox Prime? It always bothered me that many dupes after the conclusion of Peter David's X Factor haven't appeared with the M tattoos. The tattoo is supposedly written into his DNA during Messiah Complex and was pretty consistent for the remainder of the run. He of course dies in an event I refuse to recognize, thank you for doing the same, where it's notable that he doesn't have the M tattoo. Some thought at that point he wasn't Madrox Prime for that reason, but it would later turn out in the 2018 Multiple Man series that the Prime is definitely dead and the book is about a dupe. By the end of that series, Madrox Prime arrives back in 616, so we know that he's around before Krakoa with the tattoo, confirmed by this Rosenberg tweet, and there's a link. Anyway, he then dies in the latest Uncanny Run, and is then seen resurrected on Krakoa. From what I can tell, all these new Jamie's are tattoo-free, so that begs the question, has the original Madrox been resurrected, or is it a dupe? We've seen from Fallen Angels Volume 1 that it's possible in rare cases for a dupe to create more dupes, so that could be the case. It's entirely possible that the DNA used by the Five is just an old sample, but even if this is the case, we've seen other characters come back with the bodies they're now comfortable in. It seems strange that he would come back without the tattoo given that it bonds him to Layla and their shared experience. Layla still has her M in the latest issue of x Corp, so we know it's not a coloring error. Most likely Hmm. there's no way to know which Madrex the current one really is. I could see it being a rare case of Cerebra or Xavier making backups and there being a mix-up. TLDR: Do you think the current Madrox is the original or a dupe, given the lack of tattoo? Sorry for the long question. I have a new found respect for your character files, given the amount of fact checking I had to do for just this email. Thanks, (laughs) Jack Schneer. So the bottom line here is: don't worry about it. I truly believe, like I think that he got killed off and brought back specifically so that we could just not worry about how complicated this had become.
1: Yeah, like I think it's important to his character that he experienced a future mutant like genocide situation but that doesn't mean that he has to have been like the one who was present for it just that these experiences have been internalized into him in some way and I think all Jamie's are valid right like all Jamie's are
0: valid Jamie's so yeah my take is personally I don't like that they got the M tattoos because I think that that Like I just said, this was an era where I think Bishop as a character got really fucked. One of the most recognizable things about Bishop is that tattoo on his face. And so to give it to these two other characters, and it's not like Bishop is the only character to have it. His sister Shard had it. Malcolm and Reese, his like partners when he first came back in time in Bishop's Crossing, also had it. Like all the mutants of that timeline have it. Yeah. There's just something about like, Jamie having Bishop's brand that has never quite sat right with me. I don't know. That's interesting. I don't know. It just feels like he kind of stole Bishop's signifier. And this was around the same time that Bishop gets rewritten as a villain and gets like sent to comic limbo for like 10 years. Interesting. It was just odd to me. I just Yeah, yeah. I didn't care for it. More practically speaking, yes, that tattoo is coded into your DNA allegedly. But I think that what we are to take away here is that the resurrection got rid of the tattoo. I am okay with that in the same way that I think that Rachel's resurrection probably got rid of the weird back tattoo she got in the Claremont reload period, which was also, I will note, encoded to her DNA. And I personally feel like you should just not worry about that because it's just not necessary, in my opinion. Notably and this is just me spitballing randomly, in the Mark Brooks poster for Inferno, Bishop does not have his tattoo anymore. Hmm. That poster is so meticulously hand-painted that I would be shocked if that was a mistake. Interesting. So I'll be curious to see if Bishop is going to resurrect as part of this story without it, and that would answer your question. If he does, that'll be crazy. Because again, I do think that that's Bishop's main visual signifier that is iconic to him. Right. It would be sort of like getting rid of, I don't know, Polaris's green hair or whatever. Like that is their thing. But you never know. And I don't know. As for the answer, here's how I'm choosing to interpret it. If Cerebro has been backing everyone up all the time, then it has been backing up all of the different Jamie's. Mm, That's a lot of work. It is cuz we've seen there's an explicit exception made for him and the Stepford Cuckoos in the clone protocol in uh one of the cable data pages because mm-hmm. having multiple bodies is part of their power. So it would be wrong to designate one of them as the only one who can resurrect or whatever. So my read on it is that the Jamie we have now is built from Madrox Prime's DNA or whatever, but all their DNA is the same, so it doesn't really matter. And then has sort of an amalgam of all the Jamie backups that they had. So it's like, is it Jamie Prime? Yes. Is it also all those other various Jamies that might have experiences we want to reference in this story? Also, yes. I think that's the most elegant solution. And otherwise, I just wouldn't overthink it too much, personally. Brev Tanner writes, Connor, before my question, I just wanted to say, I've always seen myself as an accepting person. I have friends and family and coworkers who are in the LGBTQ plus community who I care for dearly, but your show has provided my mind, heart, and soul with so many different voices and perspectives about not just the X-Men, but journeys and stories I would probably have never heard otherwise. I know I'm a better person because of Cerebro. You are doing more than just talking about the greatest comic series of all time. You are helping make us all better people uh god well thank you Hmm. (laughs) that just really that really got me where i live i mean i i think you're doing the work to make you better people do you know what i mean like the fact that you're listening and hearing these experiences that people have and taking them in that's you brev and like you're the one who's making that choice and you know but thank you that's very very sweet of you to say Enough with the mushy stuff, he says. As a film buff, I'm curious about your thoughts on the following. Which modern actor do you think could pull off Madrox well enough to make each of his duplicates interesting and engaging to the audience? And which modern director could tackle Jamie's comical yet dour demeanor while providing a compelling atmosphere and aesthetic to the film's story? And lastly, like she did with Iceman decades ago, makes me feel old to write that, if Emma took over Madrox's body and powers, what potential do you think she could unlock within him? Again, thanks for all that you do, Berev.
1: I thought I would need more time to think of an answer to this, but I
0: immediately Dan Stevens. Oh, he'd be very good. I don't know if they would because of Legion. Like, but that's I guess not that in the universe. I know. Like, I know. They,
1: that's like really not an actual X Men property. No. If folks want more of my thoughts on Legion, I had two podcast episodes about the show. It is beautiful. Had a lot of things going for it, but it's really not an X Men thing.
0: No, it's it's very adjacent, loosely adapted.
1: Yeah, but like that, he has the right look. And he is incredibly diverse in his ability to in his ability
0: to perform different perform characters. different characters. Yeah. I actually think. You know, and this is another one who was in the Fox X Men franchise, but I think Nicholas Holt would do a really good job. He is more interesting looking than James. Yeah, is. he's that's that was my one hesitation is that he is more like he's a good looking guy, but in a like kind he's of he's interesting, good looking guy.
1: Like I feel like the blandly handsome is an important part. It is. Of the you're aesthetic. right. It's important
0: to be like quote unquote like classically handsome in that. But
1: way. not like the handsomest guy either. No, do you know what no. I mean? No. Like, no. Eric it's...
0: Dane was too hot. I don't even know who that is, but I believe you. He's McSteamy like, from Grey's Anatomy. I know, but I don't know who that is, but I believe you. Give it a Google. He's a good looking okay. guy. I think Dan Stevens is a really good shout. That's a good pick. And I would say, like, let's screen test him. As for direction, that's tricky. Well, here's one thing I'll say for free. If anyone was adapting X-Factor Investigations, I would want a woman to direct it. Yeah, it would need that to balance it for sure. That's my hot take on that. Mary Heron. Uh, I mean, yeah. Knock me over with a fucking feather. Mary Heron would kill that inside and out. But I don't know if she wants to do like a superhero. Project. No, not a chance. Doesn't that really be seem my like choice. her style, but she's great. And you know what? I keep saying things like that. And then like Chloe Zhao does a Marvel movie. Like you never know what's going to happen. in this That is world. true. Pame Bravo writes, Hi, Connor and Alana. I was just finishing the Sam episode when I saw your tweet about the Madrox episode. So my question goes hand in hand with what you and Zoe were talking about in the Sam episode about the different generations in X-Men and how characters like Monet can be with characters three generations older than them and it feels natural. In Jamie's case, I think he's always been in a nebulous zone. He wasn't a new mutant or X-Force or Gen X member, but he was in Fallen Angels alongside Siren, Boom Boom, and Sunspot. But because he's mostly associated with X Factor, he feels older than all of them. So while all those other characters either graduated to the X-Men, like Sam or Monet, or not, with Jamie, it was different because he was never a student-type character, even Mm -hmm. if he was probably their same age. What do you think? Do you think the fact that he wasn't directly associated with any of the student generations is what's made him stay relevant through the years and stand out, while many other young characters stay lumped together? Thanks for the podcast.
1: Honestly, I think more than anything, it's just that Peter David decided that he was- with him,
0: yeah, like I think it really is just that a writer with a lot of pull in the industry who wrote a book that people liked chose him that to came be the out main forever,
1: character. exactly. And I think, I, I think, I, I do think, writer, that you are correct that that is he is sort of he's not part of a particular generation in that no. way, which is true. In 90s X Factor, he is written as being one of the youngest, but he's not as young as Rain, Rain is literally a teenager, but he's written as being. The second youngest, basically. But he's still, like, not... I I think the vibe I got from him is he was, like, maybe 20, 21, 22. Like, just became an adult moments earlier.
0: The thing is, he is established in the 70s more as a peer for Lorna and Alex, Mm -hmm. who are a little younger than the 05 and the second Genesis team. Like... Iceman, Havoc, and Polaris are all a little bit younger than those other early characters. Right. I think that much like Havoc and Polaris, he got stuck in a what do we do with this character space because he doesn't have a class to put him in. That's why the three of them were very natural characters to put into the government X-Factor team together Mm -hmm. because they had history together and they are this mini cohort that doesn't have anyone else to it and they all had a connection with moira so adding wolfsbane makes sense like it's a logical setup i think it's a double-edged sword because i think that yeah you can fall into the background as one of those student characters very easily but on the other hand he was really a supporting character until x factor investigations because he wasn't a character who graduates to X Force. He wasn't a character who ever becomes one of the X Men. I mean, I think he did in the most recent Uncanny run briefly, but for the most part, he is a side character. Mm-hmm. You know, when the new mutants get to do a reunion book every now and then, he's not included because he's not part of that cohort. And I think that being part of a cohort like that can be, for older characters, useful. I think that where it becomes challenging Mm -hmm. is everyone sort of post-Generation X. I think all of those characters are competing for page space because they're all still teenagers. Whereas Jamie's been allowed to be like, you know, 28 to 33 for a long time now. I think also that much like with Monet and Siren, X-Factor Investigations kind of aged everyone up. Richter too. I mean, like, because of the tone of the book, they all kind of felt like older characters. Yeah, Brian Houston writes, Hello, Connor and guest. I'm sure you've already touched on this, but I find it interesting that the character's most important moments, the very best and the absolute worst, were all handled by the same writer, two-time GLAD Award winner Peter Allen David. <laughs> Can you think of any other non-creator-owned character where the writer responsible for defining a character was also responsible for damn near ruining the same character? Ooh. I'm specifically thinking of the aging up of Layla and the pregnancy of Terry, but you could expand that to a lot of end-era PADX factor, I guess, until Slab earns a three-hour episode, make mine Cerebro brian
1: slab
0: well in terms of like defining the character and also maybe ruining the i mean peter david also it's wolfsbane right like that is the other character that is really for better or for worse you know he put his stamp on that character in the x-men i mean it depends on what you what you think is ruining a character right like that really is the question I think it's easier to identify writers who defined a character that they didn't create. Grant Morrison is the definitive Emma Frost writer, in my opinion. I agree. Chris Claremont is the definitive Storm writer, in my opinion. And Mm -hmm. those are two characters that those writers did not create. But I don't think that either of them ruined the character. You know what I'm saying? It's hard. It's hard when you see a character written for so long by the same person who has clearly such a personal attachment to the character. It's hard when you see the story start to kind of fall apart because that's all that there is, you know? I don't know. Mm-hmm. What do you think about this question?
1: Yeah, I think that that's, that that's a great description of it. Um, As for other people who've created the best and the worst of a specific person, I... I love this question and I would, I I would need more time to, um, (laughs) you know what, actually wait, the O'Neill and Adams, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Mm. right? Like the best and the worst in both of them in the, both in the same series. So
0: interesting. That's an interesting
1: reason. Because like, I forget, there's a whole world of people who, you know what, this is not a DC podcast, but that is my answer. The the, the O'Neill and Adams, Green Lantern, Green Arrow
0: for both of them. Brad Moreland writes, Hello, I'm from West Virginia. If you want to try an accent, I'm sure that's going to be entertaining. I will pass because that is (laughs) really ambitious for my taste, yeah. yeah. Jamie Madrox is my favorite character in comics. His powers really caught my attention at the start, but the more the character was developed, the more I loved him. One of the best things about him is how much of a mess he is. It makes for very entertaining stories. Yes. On top of that, the stories that he features in tend to be stories I'm interested in regardless of characters. For a long time, he was the center of the noir detective stories written at Marvel, and even more recently than that, he was the center of a wacky time travel story in Rosenberg's Multiple Man. I just keep finding my love for the Jamie's increasing every time I see them. Anyway, I do have a question. I would like to know what each of you, Connor and Guest, would do if you had the power to split yourselves into duplicates, would you send them off around the world to learn things like Jamie does, or would you just send them to work or to do things you don't want to otherwise do? Also, like Jamie does, I've loved every episode <laughs> so far, but I'm looking forward to this one the most. Thank you for such a great podcast, Brad Morland. Oh my god, my podcast would get produced so much more quickly,
1: right? Um, and I could I could like be an active member of all the political organizations that I support, rather than just like the couple of ones that I actually like can leverage my time for. I mean, that is the dream i would be able to go back to mastering the art of drawing i mean like
0: i what a power to have yeah i mean i i never got a phd because i didn't like grad school and uh it also seemed like a terrible idea so i would probably send a phd just because like i don't i wouldn't need to then pursue the career i would just like have i could just like absorb the learning but you still have to pay for it though would i Or would the dupe pay for it? Not to be rude, but like, (laughs) I I don't know. We would figure it out. Um, Well, the other thing about having this power is it's not hard to make money, right? Because you can have dupes doing all kinds of jobs. No, but the big thing for me, I think, is there's so much of the world I've never seen. And I am not the best traveler always. I get anxious. You know, I'm like not like the best at traveling it would be nice to, like, send dupes to, like, the four corners of the earth and then have them come back and, like, oh, now you've seen Cairo. Now you've seen Mm. Prague. Like, sure, I've never been to those places. Why not, you know? Mm. I don't think I would do what he does where he, like, has them go develop extremely specific skills because I would feel weird about suddenly having those. That would like disrupt my sense of self if like suddenly mm. I was a lawyer. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> which he does. Like that would freak I know, me out, I know. You know. I love
1: I love that I love that. Like, because it is like about the multiplicity of identity and like the possibilities of what you could produce or do. And I think the choices of the careers that his dupe sent gets sent out to do are pretty revealing as well for what kinds of skills and stories people think need to be told even right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I would totally be the best band though. And I wouldn't have to make anybody else happy about
0: my particular selections or choices. Satan writes, Hello, Connor and Alana. I have a two-pronged question about Jamie Madrox. The first part is, what do you guys think about the repeated device of his dupes confronting him about his sexuality, like in issues two and three of the Madrox mini? I think it presents a unique opportunity to narratively psychoanalyze Jamie's sexuality via his dupes and explore the complexity of sexuality. Secondly, do you think there are any other aspects of Jamie's personality that would be interesting to explore via his dupes, like that dupe in X Factor 1 that is the part of him that lies to himself? Thank you for the amazing podcast and all you do for the community, Satan. Well, thank you, Satan. I always appreciate Appreciate when the prince of lies writes in. <laughs> so we've answered the first one, I think, mostly, but I liked the second question also, where it was like, what other facets of him would it be interesting to see?
1: Yeah, I, I think it would be interesting to see him really tease out his fear of abandonment and his conflict. That's what that I was ha- going to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and his conflict that he has between wanting to see himself as being self sufficient while realizing that that's actually scary itself. Yeah. And he's got a
0: ton of masculinity issues to dig into, too. Wilson Hayworth writes, Hello, Connor an esteemed guest. So excited to see y'all covering Multiple Man. He's always a character I felt a lot of love for. Having pretty substantial ADHD, I've always really related to Jamie. Yeah, I get that. Same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mood. Big mood. I think that we're all on the same page on this podcast (laughs) on that subject. Of course, there's the obvious joke that he's literally always somewhere else and never fully present in one place, but there's also the way he overcommits to new identities only to abandon them later. Over the years, we see him as a lab assistant, government agent, private eye, and now a one-man pharmaceutical lab. Each time, it seems like Jamie throws himself 100% behind a new persona until the moment he finds a new one. This even spills over into alternate worlds like the AOA, where our boys are a religious cult. As someone who constantly switches between hobbies and treats each one as if it's my life's passion, I've always felt a kinship with Madrox. I know this is probably just different writers wanting to make use of the character's power set, but is there more to it? Does something about the Jamie's Madrox lend themselves to constant redefinition? Best wishes from every version of me, Wilson.
1: Yes, and that is why he is an intrinsically postmodern character.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think that here's a compliment that is a real compliment when I say it. This feels like a character that Grant Morrison would invent if the character had not previously existed.
1: I have literally a note that says, can you believe that this was all in the 90s and right. not the 2000s? Yeah,
0: Or if it was going to be back then, can you believe that it wasn't like in Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol? right it, yeah it completely th- this is totally a doom patrol because this situation. is like something they would write i mean yeah. like a lot of the stuff with rebus and negative man again this is not a dc podcast but and with crazy jane <laughs> yeah you know crazy jane is sort of morrison's take on legion almost and yeah there's a lot of interesting stuff that, point is yeah it is the dream of like here so it's interesting because quicksilver is the adhd nightmare right like quicksilver's life is hell If you are someone who has that kind of condition, everything around him is slowed to a crawl and he just wants it to be happening. He's impatient. He can't tolerate this anymore. Multiple man has the power to hyper-focus on everything at once. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be a joy? Yeah, That's the ADHD fantasy. Whether or not writers are dealing with that kind of mental health stuff... There's an obvious joy to writing this character, and at the same time, an obvious pain to writing this character. And I think that's why, on some level, he appealed so much to Peter David, because Peter David is a writer who's very into that high comedy and then great tragedy roller coaster. Yes. You know? And this is someone who has the ability to do just about anything you could ever want to do in your real human life. But it creates all of these ontological existential questions about who he is and whether he's a real person and it leaves him despairing. So that's what I would say.
1: He's a person. Cylons are people. and Yeah,
0: right. I'm not saying they're good people, but they're people. (laughs) Well, and not all people are good. Yeah. Sometimes that's not a prerequisite. Nicholas DeVito writes, hello, Connor and Alana, longtime time scan fan. And up top, I just wanted to thank you, Connor, for opening my eyes to a new way of interpreting some of my favorite characters in fiction. When I was a younger reader, I didn't see a lot of the queer subtext for things like Iceman's sexuality. and didn't always like the stories when they were able to put them on panel because I didn't know I'd been missing subtle hints all along. I thought they came out of nowhere, but I was wrong. Listening to your perspective on the X-Men and some of its LGBT themes has broadened my horizons and hopefully made me a better ally and comics fan. Well, thank you. That's very sweet of you to write in. Onto my question Jamie Matrix is a mutant but Peter David also made him part of some separate race of kill crops feels like a dwy mm. it seems like a lot of authors have the instinct to make their favorite characters special mutants beyond the X-gene nafm lupines externals the neo all of which seem to have ended up being dwys. why do you think authors feel they need to do this and make characters more complicated do you think it waters down the mutant metaphor are there instances where you think it works better than others anyway love the pod and look forward to zallodan of more episodes in the future Sincerely, Nick. Well, the original
1: non-mutant sets of people, like the Inhumans, are great, and they're different, and they're not doing the same thing. And I also am a fan of the Eternals. But things that anything that's vaguely like trying, like, like that's not useful. That's not. If Kirby didn't do it, just
0: don't. (laughs) the thing about the Inhumans and the Eternals is that they fulfill a different thematic function. Yes, exactly. Like, the Inhumans are a eugenicist society that's very different from the mutant metaphor that's happening. And the Eternals are ancient astronauts. Yeah, they're chariots of the gods gods
1: metaphor. Uh, Not metaphor, like literally. It's literally just chariots
0: of the gods. Like, literally is just that. He's like,
1: Kirby's like, I read chariots of the gods. Here's a big thing now.
0: Well, first, here's the fourth world, which is just that. And then here is after I'm back at Marvel, my low rent fourth world. version of it not to be rude i know that the Eternals have some fans hi karen karen's listening. i'm
1: a fan it's just like uh, <laughs> not as good as the best thing ever that's all which of course yeah. it doesn't even mean it's bad <laughs> i like cersei i'm excited to see
0: Gemma yes Can. thank you
1: cersei is so much fun she's cool she's cool. and crow is fun and like we deserve that
0: i'm enjoying gillen's new uh yes it's very Turtles good book. it's very cool he made it matter like as a thing like thematically yeah. it's like here's what the eternals are which is like thank yeah. god because that's yeah. what they've needed ever since kirby kind of went no nah, here's another one i don't know so the kill crops thing you truly don't have to worry about and the reason you don't have to worry about it is because the only person who tells us about it is damien tripp who has reason <laughs> to be lying yes. because he's trying to convince jamie's parents that they should give jamie to damien tripp instead of charles xavier That's the context of the conversation. He's like, I'm like your son. I'm a kill crop. We're a different kind of thing. We're the changelings that they've always tried to destroy. Now, there are other characters with this thematic. Megan, for example, is also Mm. called a changeling. She is shaped by the superstition around her because of her empathic power. It's distinctive that certain characters are visibly mutated from birth in a way that other characters are mostly not. Nightcrawler is born looking like a blue devil guy. Megan is born as a gremlin. Hank McCoy is born with giant hands and feet. And those characters are treated differently their whole lives versus characters who manifest powers when they're teenagers or older. The problem I have with it is that I just don't really buy the idea of it as a subspecies. It just doesn't really work for me. Like, the idea that most kill crops don't survive, and so over time, mutants adapted evolutionarily to manifested puberty. It just feels like an attempt to make the bad science of the Marvel Universe into real science, which I just never lands that well for me particularly like it's science fiction don't overthink it it felt to me like Peter David trying to explain why in the 60s and 70s lots of characters were born mutated and then starting in the 80s it was always at puberty pretty much and I just don't think that needs to be explained the explanation is like who cares the concept evolved over time and it became more useful as like a puberty metaphor Mm -hmm. so and queerer well, yeah, right. To me, it just felt like an unnecessary wrinkle, and I'm glad they haven't really talked about it. So much like the Neaphem and the Chaarafim, which is just shit Azazel tells us about, which you don't have to worry about because he's the devil. Like he's yeah, probably he's just lying. fine. <laughs> Damian trip, I mean, right down to like the name he's given is like also sort of a tempting devil figure. And I just don't think you need to take what he says when he's trying to convince people of something particularly seriously. Nathaniel Steffel wrote in a lot of questions about the 2018 Multiple Man miniseries. I don't have answers to any of these questions. Hmm. And, uh... Oh, God. As always, Krakoa Welcomes wrote in with a fun little query... Krakoa writes, if you could make a duplicate of yourself, what's the second thing you'd want to do with them? The first thing presumably being, you know. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, I really would, at like in this particular
0: moment, I would be like, I need to finish. Yeah, can you my do my an edit? And that would, would be really that. helpful for me also. Yeah. I think I'm with you on that. Yeah,
1: I need to finish logging edits. <laughs> sad but
0: true. We work very hard for our listeners. We do. It's a lot of fucking work. Yeah. Mm. Last question. Luke Douglas writes, "Dear Cerebro, if multiple man fucks a clone, is it incest or masturbation?" Thank you, Luke. We have to finally yeah, we have to answer, answer this question definitively. I don't think it's incest. I think it's masturbation, even if they are real people, because they are all part of a larger gestalt whole. I think it's only masturbation if he reabsorbs him afterward. Yeah, and if not, then it's just sex with someone. Right, you know. it's just sex with <laughs> someone who is identical to you, but I they're not. He's not your sibling.
1: No, I, there's no, there, I don't understand how any, I understand why in a joke in a panel, Jamie would say, is it incest? Because like, right. he would make that joke. Right. But I don't know why any reader would think it was because no, that's not your, what a sibling it's your own is.
0: Self. Yeah, a sibling is not you. <laughs> like, yeah, no. People, people kept saying this about the Loki show, also because it involved a romance between right, two Right? They were Lokis. just
1: actually being homophobic and transphobic. Is actually what was going on. Julia Serrano and I talked about that on Graphic Policy. It was like all of you guys saying this is quicking
0: you. Actually, need to do a little bit deeper digging because that's like it's yourself. That's not incest. It's you. Multiple man is the least troubling clone problem by which yes. I will just say there's absolutely nothing wrong with it and he should do it as much as he wants, in my opinion. Cosign. Well, Alana, I'd love to hear any final thoughts you might have on Jamie Madrox and then give you an opportunity to plug everything you're working on.
1: Thanks. So yeah, I've been running this little podcast, Graphic Policy Radio, since 2012, but please do not go back and listen to episodes from 2012. The audio quality is abhorrent. We do things like interview comics creators, including some X-Men writers that you guys may like, like Christina Strain and Leah Williams. Vita Yala was on the show, but prior to their working on X-Men. And I have a lot of roundtable conversations, which you should come on sometime, Connor. I would love to. Yay! When we talk about particular nerdy topics. I also run a side spinoff podcast called Deep Space Dive, where I am joined by experts
0: to talk about the themes of Deep Space Nine, the best track and the queerest. Did you know that my client Alex White is doing a Dax and Kira novel?
1: No, but I am 100% excited about that.
0: It's called Revenant. You can look it up. That is very cool. Alex is the first non-binary person to write the trill. So we're very Yes, excited.
1: non-binary trill all the fucking way. Yeah, we're yeah, pretty okay. jazzed about that. I love it. So that's my main thing I would tell people to do is to check out Graphic Policy Radio on every podcast platform one can imagine. I spend a little bit too much time on Twitter at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. And um, I have been known to do a lot of work with the Jack Kirby Museum and Institute. So if you are interested in hearing what perhaps a queer person who is not a man has to say about Jack Kirby, um, which it feels like there aren't enough platforms for those of us to speak about it. My stuff with them might be a place for you to encounter that because I do think that the importance of his work on like, yes, like Chris Claremont made the X-Men what they are, but there still was work from Kirby that was essential to to them becoming what they are. So I would love to have folks check that out as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit critical of the Lee Kirby X-Men period. Of their work together, I think it is not—it's not their best work. Together. Their best work together, and I do think that it's Claremont who really makes the franchise sing. But there's lots of stuff in the '60s that's worth looking at. And mm-hmm. the funniest thing for me is someone—I forgot who it was—but like took all of the dialogue out of an issue. Yes, it's
1: yeah, yeah, it's the best. So I'm a big supporter of of her
0: work. Kate Willard has the as the Tumblr Kirby without words. Definitely look that up. It's fascinating, and particularly fascinating, any scene about Marvel Girl, Jean Grey, yes, is really interesting. It was done Marvel method. So Kirby draws it before Stan adds the dialogue, and if you don't have the dialogue, Jean is much more self-sufficient and keeps yep. rescuing everyone, and then when you add in the dialogue, it's like... Gene, it's Professor Xavier. Let me tell you how to save everyone. Yeah. Or, you know, her second guessing herself or whatever in a way that you wouldn't it's take not away from the just Conrad the art. art. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like Kirby is out there making on this little feminist comic and then Stanley is just writing sexism all over it for completely <laughs> needless reasons that do not help the storytelling. In fact, they hurt the storytelling. Yeah. I, please check out Kirby Without Words. Like the, you owe it to yourself. So, yeah, that's my that's my story. Thank you. I was really excited to be to be able to do this. So thanks for having me.
0: Well, thank you so much for being my guest. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the Cerebro fan Discord, the Cerebro merch store, and the Patreon at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. You can support Cerebro on Patreon at patreon.com Cerebrocast. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier, you will receive the Cerebro Secret Files bonus episodes. A new one should be up as you are listening to this. Sarah Century will be joining me to do a deep dive on Victoria Montesi, Marvel's first lesbian character. Oh. Who rules... She's not an X-Men character, so we're doing it as a bonus. So check out the Patreon if you want. More stuff beyond that coming this month after August. I'll be all caught up, and then it'll be two bonus episodes every month. And we're having fun, I think. And uh, just as a reminder, again, if you have questions on Jubilee, Cable, or Charles Xavier, send those in. I'm recording a whole bunch over the next few weeks. Hopefully you'll get it under the wire. It all really depends on guest scheduling. And guess what? August into September is a busy time for a lot of people, especially comics professionals, because we're gearing up for con season. Theoretically, maybe, who knows? Hmm, hmm,
1: hmm. I'm doing a panel on fan activism at Flame Con that I think will be documented in ways that people can watch it later uh, with Portia Patterson and Jay Edidin. And folks should definitely check that out. And if you ever want to talk about fan activism stuff, come and
0: bark up my tree. That sounds like a fascinating panel. Friend of the pod, Jay Edidon, is always a brilliant listen. And I bet you guys are going to have a great chat. As always, everybody, thank you for listening. I love doing this show. And I love doing this show because of all of you. Please continue to join the conversation. But don't bring any bad vibes. Until next time, everybody, thank you for listening. And bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world.
1: Only hope is... X-Men.